Mr. Robot Season 2, Episode 11, Python Part 1 is over, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps, talking about technically the first installment of the Season 2 finale of Mr. Robot. That's pretty wild. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wiggler. I'm joined here by my co-host, who has absolutely cried during podcasting before antonio mazaro antonio what's going on i just wiped some tears away from my eyes right now josh you're a very weepy man i am well look it comes with the territory i'm italian i'm in touch with my emotions it happens i actually don't think that i've ever heard you cry on a podcast but now i have a goal have you heard me cry not on a podcast i don't think that that's appropriate to share on the podcast Josh, I have a question for you. What's going on? Red or purple? The answer is neither. It was going to be giraffe or seagull. <laughs> giraffe or seagull. <laughs> um, giraffe. Obviously, Joshua Giraffe, the hit Raffy song. Have you never heard of that one before? I, ha- I mean, is that like Ducks Like Rain or, you know, other, other Raffy classics? Yeah, I, I have heard of that Joshua one. Joshua Giraffe. He was born in a zoo. He lived there, too, for two years and a half. Post-show recap. Post-show re-giraffes. Yeah, I know. All right, well, no we'll good. stop talking about giraffes until the giraffe moment comes upon us. But we are talking about Mr. Robot Season 2, Episode 11. This is the first half of the two-part season finale. I think that the two-part season finale was supposed to air all on one night originally. It's been broken up over the course of two weeks. This was supposed to be finale time right now we should have been talking about the whole picture instead we're just talking about hour one of what i assume will be an a uh, hundred hour long podcast next week yeah i'm fine with that josh i'm fine with this being broken up as long as we don't get broken up we're not getting broken up you and i are staying together are you really fine with this being broken up you're good with the finale being split apart two weeks well i would have been good except for the fact that i have a feeling that it was intended to be one episode from the jump and as a result probably the break feels a little more arbitrary than it should i think a lot if people maybe wanted more out of this episode for example we don't even see darlene and cisco or or they're in the remains of we don't know what happened with that story we know at least someone probably survived but we don't know the full takeaway there but we don't even get a check-in on that so no trace of mustard anywhere no condiments conspiracy alive and well i should say but you yeah. did slow you did see the slowed down version of last week's cliffhanger and you did see the mustard mist did you not indeed yes the mustard mist is real so I am. Uh, I'm buying in on that. I wanted to believe, and now I do believe. I but do yeah. think Cisco is toast. I think that Cisco's head absolutely exploded on impact with some bullets. But I think Darlene's okay. Well, do you think that Lupe's restaurant is now serving Cisco toast? <laughs> it should, or Crisco toast, perhaps. Yeah, I heard that restaurant's really good. Sam Esmail was tweeting about it and said you have to go there. So, Josh, you live in New York. You have to. All go right, there. I'll I'll do the research. I'll find your way to Lies Restaurant. I will check it out. I will go to Lies or Lupe or whatever it is on that night. So, yeah, we get no closure on that front. We do hear it explicitly from Dom. People died, she says. But what people? We do not know who those people are. I feel like we're burying the lead. Of course, the big deal of this episode is the apparent return of Tyrell Wellick. Tyrell back in the mix, either as a flesh and blood character or as a figment of Elliot's imagination, as Elliot explicitly says on the show, he questions Tyrell's existence in the back of that taxi cab. I thought that that was a great touch. Either way, Tyrell is back in it right now. Tyrell is back and a little bit anticlimactic arrival of Tyrell. I should say he just sort of popped into a cab and there he is. Yeah, he just hopped in. It's like, oh, sweet. I didn't know that you were here. I didn't know that you were sharing a cab with me to our Secret Dark Army uh, meeting. Have they not showed me on the show this season? I didn't know this. (laughs) 
This is new. Yeah. This is new to me. Sorry, if I knew I was missing, I would have made a more dramatic appearance. So I do wonder, you know, does that moment play better if you can immediately dive into what's happening with Tyrell, you know, five minutes later, you know, after the next commercial break? Uh, you know, it's the, it's the sort of argument we've been having, not even really an argument, but we've talked about whether Mr. Robot plays better on a binge. It certainly plays differently week to week, this being my first experience with Mr. Robot as a weekly experience. I think that it will probably not be as anticlimactic when you are just going through it on the binge and suddenly there's Tyrell and you are bleeding right into the next part of the finale but as uh as a week in between two parts of what's supposed to be the same episode I do feel like it's hanging a little bit in the air as kind of a okay so what's gonna happen now yeah if you'll recall the way the premiere aired other than the leaks where where certain parts of the premiere were shown in advance the premiere was in two parts as well but both aired on the same night and probably one of the best scenes of the entire season was at the beginning of the second part with scott knowles burning the money in the park so that was something that came only after the first episode ended with the chiefs of e-corp essentially talking about what they would do that was the ending of the first episode so imagine if they had split those up and week one ended with that scene i would feel a little bit anticlimactic for sure even though week two would begin with a huge huge scene and not splitting those up and airing them on one night gave us those things right back to back and i think we're missing that and lacking that because these two did get separated but i have high hopes that the finale is going to deliver all right let's talk about python let's talk about everything that happened in this episode python do you like the name it doesn't seem to have a readily apparent meaning yet i have a feeling python will be more apparent from the second part of uh, the finale for sure because i didn't see many python connections here in the first part did you no, I caught no Python connections unless, I don't know, I didn't do the freeze frame on DDP's tattoos. Does she have any Python tattoos on her arms as we saw in her hospital scene? She's tatted up. I think that's the first time we're seeing that DDP is tatted up. Those are colloquially referred to as Pythons. Wrestler Hulk Hogan famously referred to as 24-inch Pythons as biceps. So maybe there's just her arms. Maybe the whole <laughs> yeah, we episode gotta title. we got to study those biceps. Yes, the whole episode title just refers to DDP's biceps. Yep, that's what <laughs> we're doing. Pythons. Yep, that's where we are with Mr. <laughs> Robot at the end of the second season. Mm-hmm. So un- unless that's it, I don't think that we know what that is. You gotta imagine, like, is that the name of stage two? Is there some sort of python that's going to be unleashed upon the masses of Manhattan, Antonio? It's possible. I, I we're gonna we'll, we'll take a turn for the squid, a la Watchmen, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, something will, will just fall down on top of the entire city, yeah. uh, or like the Freedom Tower, a giant snake will encircle itself. Oh my I, God. I don't know. There's probably a computer program or, or programming in language called Python. I think uh, there there are a lot of possibilities there in the computer realm, but there's also the possibility of just the Python itself, the animal, the snake, and what that could possibly mean. And I think once you get into that you're right that does open the door for a lot of is this related to stage two is this related to something that maybe is lying dormant and then will squeeze the life out of something or however uh, it will, will feed just swallow something and asphyxiate it like i think that what, what, when we talk about what we think stage two might and end up actually being i think there are some possibilities with the python connection there for sure all right we'll talk that through as it comes up let's talk through the episode we begin 
with Elliot Alderson, who we know is very confused right now. Mr. Robot suddenly gone as soon as the Tyrell phone rings last week. He's wondering, why is Mr. Robot acting so shady? Is there something going on with Tyrell? What am I not seeing? He's going to ask that question later on in this episode. What am I not seeing? Here we are seeing Elliot in bed, he is talking about how he had this friend, Sam, Sam Esmail, perhaps, back in his early days of middle school, who taught him uh, a mantra to access lucid dreaming so you could study in your sleep. You lie awake and you repeat this mantra in your head, mind awake, awake body, body asleep, asleep, mind awake, mind awake body, body asleep. Sorry. So, <laughs> so, yeah, well, no, we're supposed to do it together. If we do it in perfect synchronicity, then I think you and I are both going to fall asleep and podcast in our sleep for the rest of this podcast. Oh, my gosh. That would be awesome because I could get rest and produce content. That would be fantastic. Mind awake, podcast asleep. Yes, uh, podcast so my, awake, body asleep. Mind awake, body asleep, mind awake, body asleep. And it leads us into this really kind of you know, eerie chanting that's going on in the background of mind awake, body asleep, mind awake, body asleep, as we are going to black and the Mr. Robot title card comes out. And that is really the last of Elliot that we see for the vast majority of the episode until the end. Elliot is going to drift off and it's going to be because of this little lucid dreaming state that he's going to get in, that he is going to become the silent observer. He's talking about how uh, Angela was right. We can't beat evil but there's no reason we can't stop them from winning either. And when he's talking about Mr. Robot, who is always the silent observer, Elliot is wondering, basically, why can I not be the silent observer? He's always listening in on our conversations. He can talk to you, friend. He can hear us. He's always one step ahead of us because he is us. He is me. Why can't I be the person who's one step ahead? So that's what this is all designed for. Now that he knows that he needs to be skeptical of Mr. Robot, or at least now that he's been reminded that he needs to be skeptical of Mr. Robot. He's trying to take some sort of proactive action in order to be the guy who is able to spy on his alter ego as opposed to vice versa, which it normally is. Yeah, and there's also the aspect of the duality, right? The duality that is already present with Elliot and Mr. Robot, where there are two aspects of this person or there's a secondary aspect to the personality. The duality is something that pops up on this show a lot. There are a lot of dual things. White Rose, for example, has the duality of being a man uh, representing as Minister Shang sometimes and as a woman representing as White Rose. There are a lot of people uh, ostensibly working in one role but occupying another, dual agents and things like that. And the mind awake, body asleep thing is another part of that. You're, you're, you know, One part of you is doing one thing while another part of you is doing another. And we've talked a lot with different episode titles, Damon's different things that are going on in the background while the other thing is in a consistent state. So this mind awake body asleep thing is in perfect keeping with a lot of the themes that go on on the show. It also has the added benefit, obviously, of throwing the whole episode into this weird psycho babble kind of loop where you're not sure if what you're seeing is a, is real or a dream. It has, it has the purpose and effect, obviously, of throwing everything really askew and making you wonder if what you're seeing is really happening or not. So it serves a lot of purposes. I think most of what goes on in this episode and a lot of what has gone on in Mr. Robot, especially in the second season, has a dual purpose, has the purpose of advancing the narrative and advancing the story, but also creating atmosphere, making us feel a certain way about what's going on, making us wonder if what we're seeing is real. And I think the mind awake body asleep perfectly encapsulates that. Uh, do you want to know the backstory of Mind Asleep, Body Awake, or vice versa, Mind Awake, Body Asleep? I want to know it all. Yes, please. 
Uh, I am continuing my interviews with Cora Adana this week, who is the technology producer on Mr. Robot, one of the writers as well. We got to chat again about some of the weird stuff that happened this week, and I asked uh, if this was a story because there's the middle school friend named Sam. Maybe this is a better question for Sam Esmail, but is this a real story of Sam's, or was it purely invented for the show? And it turns out that this is actually from Cora Adana's past. Cora Adana says, this is actually a story from my past. I used to be obsessed with lucid dreaming and i went through this phase where i did an ungodly amount of research on the subject the mind awake body asleep method came from that research sam wanted elliot to go through some kind of internal mantra that allows for the silent observer ability he and the rest of the room liked the lucid dreaming technique and thought it was a great fit for what we were trying to accomplish it's weird that uh that that's something that he was obsessed with because i have experimented or played around with it a little bit in my life as well and i think everybody to a certain extent has been in a situation where they're dreaming and they realize that they're probably dreaming but they don't wake up they don't necessarily you don't necessarily uh, control your dream you don't get to do everything that you want in the dream but you realize while you're dreaming this is probably a dream i shouldn't be upset about a certain thing i'm going to wake up this is going to be fine i've had those thoughts in dreams before and i've played around with it when i was a kid because i was obsessed with dreams i think a lot of people have gone through these phases and there are different ways to accomplish the, the lucidity or to get yourself into a position some people or say the lucidity the lucidity of it all some people look at their hands and say these are my hands uh, and they, they look at them a lot before they go to bed while they're lying in bed right before they go to sleep and they say if i see my hands in my dream i'm going to know i'm dreaming and then i'll be able to control my dream uh little tricks like that i think are similar to this mantra mind awake body asleep there are different kinds of lucid dreams dreams uh, it is not something i like to see introduced at the 11th hour of a season of mr robot because it really does throw a dream-based monkey wrench into a lot of what we're doing but i am bound and determined to take on this podcast on the level and really not get too deep into the deep dream because that can be some scary stuff uh i think that that's going to be very difficult to resist but we will try we, we got will. we got to try we can't lindle off our way through this we're one, not going to little there's enough lindle off and going on elsewhere so we will do our best not to lindle off too hard so elliot is going to go into this sleeping state we'll check back with him toward the end of the episode we're certainly used to having mr robot without rami malik at this point so it's not so strange to have the vast majority of an episode of mr robot without elliot that's definitely something that the show has gotten us used to wonder why we've gotten used to that i don't know if it's um just to give all of these other characters so much room to breathe are we being prepared for more time without rami malik i do wonder why we have you know sort of drifted into this state where elliot is not quite as present on the show as he has been in the past but i think it's an interesting place that we're in right now i like that it's disorienting like that i like yeah. that we're separated i like that elliot can't trust us and that we can't trust him on some level i also like that elliot has tried throughout this season and even last but especially this season to control mr robot to get a, a leg up whether it's to beat him in chess and get rid of him whether it's to create a perfect routine to keep him in check and to keep him at bay whatever the options he's tried with mr robot he's failed but he has constantly tried and now after he's dealt with angela after he's dealt with the the brownouts if you will seeing mr robot in the other room talking to darlene and cisco while he was standing in the bathroom hearing mr robot 
say, I'm tired, I want to go home, and sitting on another couch watching that happen, it's natural that I think Elliot's mind would say, what else can I maybe do to control this guy? And what he's pivoted to is, okay, he's been the guy that is operating in the background, the mind that's been awake while his body has been asleep. He exists only in that realm, the silent observer. I want to play that role, so I'm going to try to flip the script on him, and this is one way I know how to do it. And so it seems like a very natural progression for Elliot to do this, but by doing so, it does take him out of the episode, and that feels natural to me. I like that we get disoriented when Elliot disappears from these things, because it does make you wonder what is happening while we go on, and what I'm hoping for out of the second part of this finale is we are going to see that three days. The last time, we really, really lost Elliot for a long period of time, and we still don't know what happened in those three days. I want to see what mind was awake at that time, what body was asleep, who was in control, who was silently observing, why has Elliot not remembered what happened over those three days, and when are we going to find out? I'm hoping we're going to get some of that now that Tyrell has reemerged. Hopefully he will inform Elliot about what happened. All right, let's not talk about Tyrell too much directly yet, but let's talk about his wife, Joanna, who is going to be at the core of the next scene. She is swaddling her baby, baby Wellick. What a cute little baby for such psychotic parents. Yeah, very cute little baby. Very wide-eyed and seems happy. Like it, like the child. But Joanna is there, and Sutherland is back. Chief Keefe has returned with the intel that Elliot provided of where the phone calls have been coming from, that mysterious Upper East Side address that we still don't know exactly who that belongs to. But Joanna seems to recognize it. She says, are you sure that this is accurate? And when it's confirmed that, yes, this is indeed accurate, Joanna says, of all the gifts he sent, this is the greatest we ever received. A location that that's it? Or is it like the promise of a new place on the Upper East Side and that's really sweet? Yeah, the place that Scott Knowles made fun of their current their current living situation. Like, oh, you're still in that little quaint place in Chelsea or whatever? Right, like, right, oh, back in season one. Yes. Now we're going to get to move. Oh, yeah, this is we're moving on up to the East Side or whatever it is. Like, I don't know ultimately what this is. I'm a little rattled by that because we speculated last episode that it was possibly something like Scott Knowles' house himself. We looked at the block. There were businesses on the block. There was even a computer store there, but it looked like a residence address that Elliot pulled up. It even said residence on Spokio. We just didn't see the name. So I, Joanna knows where, where Scott Knowles lives. She's been to the house. We've seen that happen. We, when Scott Knowles was staggering around red wine drunk, and we haven't seen him since. So I don't know what the significance of this address would be if it was Scott Knowles, why this would be a great gift, or why Joanna would need to receive it. It seems like it may be some Something different than that now i don't know what do you think what's your thinking on the that location now after this quick scene with joanna and, and chief keith well i think you have to couple it in with the fact that we now have seen tyrell back on the show and assuming that that is a real tyrell let's let's take it at face value for this conversation at least tyrell as we see him at the end of this episode isn't haggard doesn't look like he's been starving or no beard. beaten or hurt no beard i was really hoping for some wellick beard i felt yes. like that would have been a good look with the icy blue eyes i feel like that's a good combo uh no tyrell is as put together as ever you know he looks great sharp dressed man all of that is exactly Exactly as we remember him. Um, so if we're wondering if he was like a secret Knowles, you know, inhabitant or if he was in, you know, captivity under uh, under Scott Knowles's oppressive regime or anything like that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, I feel like 
I don't know. I'm still of the mind, though, that this house is probably Scott Knowles' house. And I can't imagine Tyrell and Scott Knowles peacefully cohabitating. So I'm starting to be of the mind that this is a phone call that is being placed from Scott Knowles' house. And my instinct is that Scott Knowles is the one who's been doing the calling. And why does Joanna think that's a great gift at that point? I think, well, of all of the gifts he sent, this is the greatest we ever received. If she is now thinking that the he is Scott Knowles and all of the things that he's been sending, like a baby rattle or, you know, earrings or whatever he's been sending that are just, you know, nice ornamental gifts. We certainly know what her relationship to material objects is. These stolen earrings from last episode are the cheapest things that she owns. So anything, she can have whatever she wants. So the material objects are not going to be nearly as great a gift as finding out that Scott Knowles is the gift man that he is the caller that he is the mystery person and now she actually has an active physical concrete destination that she can go to for all of these questions that she's been asking all season long my hunch is that it's scott knowles who's been calling who's been harassing her who's been trying to get under her skin maybe trying to figure out where tyrell is and Joanna's going to handle that in the re- in the rest of the finale that would be my bet of where this is going well let me talk you through a few more options So if you'll recall in season one, Joanna was very happy with what happened with Susan or Sharon Knowles with the, uh, the great bathroom incident of season one, because she said, now we know what she wants. This is great. She's let us know what her weakness is. Ultimately, she's let us know what she wants. This is what we needed. This is exactly what needed to happen. And Joanna was very pleased by that. And that meant basically, look, now we know exactly what we can do in order to get in the door to control what we need to control thanks to her we know so that was a great gift that sharon knowles gave them in that in that realm so is it possible that joanna's this is the greatest gift we ever received has to do with now she knows that scott knowles is desperate is uh, malleable or controllable is somebody that she can now go to and use uh use maybe different ways to get information out of him now i know he's desperate and obsessed with me i didn't know that before now that I know that, this is the greatest gift he's given us. He's given me the gift of knowing how to control him. Is that a possible read? Yeah, I think that's absolutely a possible. Okay, what if Elliot has been sending the gifts and Joanna is saying he, the greatest gift he's ever given us, is the gift of knowing where that phone is located? Is that possible? Um <sighs> I mean, that's starting to blend into Tyrellian territory for me. You have to talk through a little bit more. So basically, the idea would be not that Scott Knowles has been sending the gifts. Assume for a moment that someone else has been sending the gifts and that this address itself is a gift, that that Joanna didn't know ultimately where something was located before. Now that she knows where it's located, that's a greatest gift that she's been given. Uh, and the only way that that makes sense is if the giver is also the person who gave her the address and the person who gave her the address is Elliot. So Elliot has been in contact with Joanna all season long without knowing it. Yeah, or just somebody, Elliot has been having somebody send those things uh, in that Elliot's been part of something. And now finally, Elliot has shown where they need to go next. And it is an address that's known to them, but it it isn't necessarily Scott Knowles' house. It could be something else. I just, I'm, I'm a little more distant on the Scott Knowles connection at this point because if Tyrell showed back up and Tyrell is actually alive and is actually real and is actually represented by what we see on screen, I'm not sure how 
the phone being at Scott Knowles' house is a great gift. I just don't, I don't get that. I don't get that interpretation. This scene is so fleeting. It's the only scene in the episode of Joanna and Chief Keefe. And it's really just like maybe a 30 second scene, right? It's, and it's gone. And it's, it's, fast, so, yeah. it's so easy to forget in the context of this episode. Again, if we see two, it might've been more well anchored, but I'm looking at a well, circumstance like where I'm saying that again. Wellick. Wellick anchored. anchored. Yes, that sorry. would be. That's perfect. Sorry. No. I'll that's shut good. up now. I'll shut up. I always stop down for good puns, Josh. I know. I'm sorry. I don't know why I stopped down for that one, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, Malair. I'm kidding. So what, I would, what I'm getting at ultimately is I'm, I'm just wondering if there's a scenario where Tyrell is. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to get into this right now. If there's a scenario where Tyrell is dead. He's still dead. And that this manifestation of Tyrell in this cab is something from Elliot's crazy brain. And, Which and Ty- Elliot expresses on the show. So yes. it, is a, it is a thing to bat back and forth. For it's sure. a thing to bat back and forth. He says, look, we can't trust what I see. We know that now. So let's assume Tyrell is dead. And what Elliot has provided Joanna at this point by giving her that address is where she can she can put that to rest, where she can get Tyrell's body, whatever it is. And that's a gift because it frees her of suspicion from the FBI, harboring a fugitive, them watching her every move. It can actually get them closure on this deal. More than anything, that's the great gift because it will allow her to finish that story. Is there a possibility there? Yeah, I think that that's a possibility. Um, I, I think... I think it's a strong possibility. Um, we'll t- I mean, we'll talk through the possibilities about Tyrell when we get to Tyrell in greater detail. But if you are following down the thread and if you are, if you're on team Elliot of not being sure that Tyrell is there in that cab and actually leaning toward the belief that he is not there in that cab, then that would probably suggest that Tyrell is not walking among us anymore, I would think. Um, and if that's the case and if this were a call coming from Scott Knowles's house, then like that's going to be the resolution to that storyline and you don't need Tyrell to be involved in the resolution of that storyline. He wouldn't be involved in the resolution of that storyline. I think that that's on the table for sure. And maybe it's part of a frame-up job of Scott Knowles that will free Joanna Wellick of further suspicion or something to that effect, and that's why it's a great gift. The only reason I say that is the other shoe with Joanna Wellick throughout the course of this season has been that weird relationship she has with the DJ uh, and uh, the divorce papers that were filed and the weird I don't, we don't understand. We, we talked about her burrowing her ways out of five Foxholes and her interpretations of giving herself as many outs as possible in these scenarios. That part of her character is really unresolved in, throughout the course of this season, and it's a big question mark. Why has she been behaving the way she's been behaving sans Tyrell? Why has she been carrying on this relationship with this guy? Is it for the stated reasons that she says about being easy to love him and not like everyone else she's ever been with? Uh, or is it for some other, and I think we would probably believe this is more like likely more sinister reason that Joanna Wellick is a, is a very dominating, controlling, scary, icy, cool individual who can just make relationships into whatever she needs them to be. And so if her if she's had other stated goals throughout this season, we haven't really drawn a good circle around what those are. And to me, if you're starting to get into that realm, Tyrell being dead and finishing that off and getting her out from underneath all of the suspicion and public backlash and everything that's coming with Tyrell, uh, that would be a real gift for her, for sure. So that's my interpretation. And I think that the other... 
I think that the other read of a great gift could possibly be uh, thank you for alerting me to the fact that you are the psychopath harassing me, Scott Knowles. Now I'm going to show up to your front door and slice your face off. Uh, that feels like a very vampiric great gift for this really scary Joanna Welk that we have known throughout two seasons. So I think that it could be as simple as that. Yeah, or maybe she just needs that leverage to get the Wellick's, uh, the Wellick retirement money that E Corp wasn't freeing right. up. That was the exactly. other issue, right? So now maybe it's a gift that she has material to use against Scott Knowles to get what she needs out of Scott Knowles, which is that money. So it could be something as simple as that. For sure, for sure. All right, so I mean, we can we can debate you know debate that back. And I think forth we've done we well. Want. I think we've covered think, the bases. I think there. we've done well. I think we've done well <laughs> on that. Now, in terms of proceeding forward through the episode, I think that the best way to do it is let's take it by storyline right now. Um, Angela's story is going to be such a big part of the rest of the episode, and that's going to I would guess dominate the vast majority of this podcast. So let's put that into the future a little bit forward. Let's stop down and talk about DDP first. Are you cool with that? I can't wait for this. Let's talk about DDP. DDP, who we are seeing in the hospital, presumably the morning after the shooting took place, that probably claimed Crisco's life, Cisco's life, maybe, maybe did not take Darlene. I'm leaning towards not. We just don't know. We have no clarity on the issue as of this episode. They are not addressed by name, Cisco and Darlene. DDP is very, very upset. She's pissed that Santiago released that sketch about Cisco because that clearly led the Dark Army to do what the Dark Army did and kill a whole bunch of people, probably a bunch of our main characters. And we've been blaming Santiago as well. So nice to see him get blamed on the show. He gets blamed on the show, but I, I walked away from this scene feeling like he put a little bit of my concerns to bed. Like maybe he wasn't really a negative guy or a secret agent or double agent the whole time. Maybe he's just a guy who's going along to get along and trying to keep his job intact and trying to do what his bosses say in an environment that is fraught with bad PR and fraught with a lot of issues, uh, bureaucratically speaking. He's just trying to deal. And I, I sense that the performance from this actor playing Santiago here was on the level that he was what he was saying to DDP he truly felt and even though she called it into question he responded by saying I completely agree with you we have to be careful we got to try not to step on the landmines we have to step around them but it's probably a good strategy uh, generally you know, he, speaking yeah you don't want to step on the landmines if you can avoid it Paul McCartney's been advocating for that for years I think oh that was God. one of his major causes uh, but yeah so this what is does John the, Lennon have to say about it I, I think John Lennon maybe would, would love to be alive to so step on a landmine oh god all right let's get away from this <laughs> yeah we have to no beetles today but uh but yeah this is i mean i what about you do you think santiago walks away from this scene in your eyes being more less more suspicious less suspicious or just the same I think you could still read it as he is Dark Army linked up that, you know, he's trying to get her away from that because she has been valuable. She if if you are reading that Santiago is with the Dark Army is paid for by somebody, then DDP led the way to Cisco and Darlene and led the way to that assassination being carried out. So maybe he wants to keep DDP in the field uh, because she's useful in certain ways as long as she's not too close to the truth. So I think that you could still read Santiago, her boss, as being off the level but i think now you can also read it as him 
being on the level, which was always still in the possibility that it was just a red herring, that he missed the shootout the first time, that he's been a jerk to her recently. I think that that's still in the mix, especially the way that he talks about China giving the $2 trillion, which is huge, bailout to E-Corp. I think that the way that he's talking about things here, you could see it as being authentic from this guy who really does want to, you know, who believes in DDP's work, who believes in what she is doing, but also knows the bureaucratic reality of we have to do it by the book. We have to do it within certain boundaries. Otherwise, we're going to get blown up. Um, so I'm of, I'm of two minds of it still, maybe leaning a little bit away from Santiago being dirty this week, um, but not so away from it that it's ruled out for me. That's where I'm at. It doesn't fully close it out to me. I mean, nothing's ever going to be fully closed out to me one way or the other until the show's over, right? Or until Santiago is killed or we know one way or the other for sure. But I think this scene didn't feel as suspicious as the previous interactions he's had with her, where he's been the not sympathetic boss who just tells her what to do, kind of puts her in a specific place that he wants her to be, or gets her off of a specific set that he wants her off of. He's, I think, dealing with very specific and real things here. Like, look, you're right. I agree with you, but we're in a very difficult spot here because of what just happened with that $2 trillion, like you're saying. And I don't know if it's red herring or not. By the way, very glad glad that wasn't a red herring in the fish tank i think my head would have exploded <laughs> yeah that'd be too far <laughs> that would be a bridge yeah. too far for sure yeah. or a fish too far but uh but yeah this is uh this is this is something where i i definitely in this scene felt like okay santiago i'm starting to evolve my opinion about you a little more i think i was hard leaning into santiago being dirty not that he necessarily led the dark army via ddp to that assassination i think the fem to sell is still a wide open back door uh, which is not a hashtag I would recommend using. But no. uh, but I think that's still a wide open back door that the Dark Army is exploiting. Uh, and Santiago's not part of that. But right. I do think that he is, he's been a little bit uh, I don't know what the word is, hapless uh, or a little, his hands have been tied by the bureaucratic issues that the Bureau of Investigation is facing. And I think that ultimately here he's, he's, well, I mean, look, DDP calls him out in the carpet and is basically like, you released the sketch and as a result of your action, innocent people got killed. And he's like, hey, thanks a lot for that, by the way. Yeah, so, it's been a minute since I've been blamed for the deaths of innocents. Right. Well, when was the last time I wondered, by the way? But yeah, yeah this is uh, this is him, I think, level with her and being like, look, I, we're on the same page here. You and I, I know I'm your boss, but we're equals in that we're both similarly screwed by everything that's going on well above our pay grades. You want to bring in Comey? You want to say this is an act of war? I understand. But let's talk about how difficult it is if we're really just banging the drum about war with China in light of what they just did. They really bought themselves a lot of goodwill. Two so trillion be, dollars worth of goodwill. Two trillion dollars worth of goodwill, which by the way, I've with taken- zero interest. I buy things from Goodwill a lot, and two trillion would go a long way at Goodwill. Long way, long yeah. way. <laughs> I could clothe myself for the rest of uh, time immemorial if, yes. uh, if I had two trillion at Goodwill. But yes. yeah, this is this is ultimately, I think they're they're on the level together. But there is something I think interesting that evolves from this scene. They they go back and forth, and they kind of have this very real moment where her boss is almost saying to her, "We're equals in terms of how screwed we are." She says, "Promise me you'll let me do the interview." 
I know. How about that, Josh? How about that? And who is the interview with? You got to imagine that's Darlene. I don't think Cisco is alive. If Cisco is alive, he could be in there. Is she just, you know, is the interview going to be some person who survived the shootout who on the other side of that window DDP was consoling throughout the quick madness that was playing? I guess that's possible. Yeah, it's Lupe but, of Lupe's Restaurant. But you know me. Lies, I say to that. <laughs> you know me. I have been team DDD for quite a while that Darlene and Dom have some history. Uh, so this helps that theory along a little bit, I think, if you're thinking that DDP really wants to talk to Darlene, uh, wants to do the interview with Darlene if Darlene has survived and Darlene is incarcerated right now. And I think it plays very well with the, the other DDP scene of the episode, which we can talk about now in addition to this scene um, where she's going to go home and talk to Alexa. And Alexa's really not the best conversationalist, especially when you are in this emotionally fraught state. But I think that that paired with the idea of DDP having just gone through this traumatic shootout, her second firefight in a month, basically, basically, uh, with another Dark Army operative. I think that for her, if you're reading it as she's just been through this emotionally traumatic moment, she's just had her life on the line for the second time in a very short period of time, and it happened while she was next to the you know former love of her life who may have just lost the love of her current life in Cisco. that I feel like this scene reads really, really heavily if you are on board with DDDP. Yeah, Josh, you, you're down with DDDP? You know me. All right, perfect. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, this is, uh, this is, you're right, complete fuel to the DDDP fire. And I think not only the scene in the hospital where the, the question, the ask from DDP is almost desperate. It's, it's very much promise me you'll let me do the interview. It's almost a beg. And Santiago understands, I think, and recognizes whether he knows the history or not, if that is the case. He, he says, like, yeah, it can definitely wait a few hours. Go home and get some sleep. And maybe we're going to find out next week that he's going to release whoever it was and not let DDP do the interview, and Santiago's going to be back on the side of bad. Uh, yeah, no problem. Maybe he's going to kill whoever it is, but I don't think that's the case. I think Santiago's in the level. I think her desperation is real. It isn't just about, I want to interview whatever victim didn't die i i think it's about this has personal meaning to me and man i know she just witnessed some people get killed in front of her i know that's a harrowing experience i know that that's like the second minutes for seconds from death shootout she's experienced in a number of what like five or six weeks very quickly and all of that alone is enough to be fueled with trauma you know to be really fueled with some ptsd in this moment right ptsd dp and we know for (laughs) we know for example that she didn't take the time off after the first incident. They wanted her to do that, and she didn't do that. The person who can't leave the room when Santiago says, can I get some time alone, is the active shooter. You used your gun. I'm here from the FBI to make sure everything's on the level and look into all that kind of person, the psych person, the person who's evaluating the events that went down. That's the you-know-I-can't-leave guy, and Santiago does send him out. So DDP very clearly, even if it's not a DDDP thing, even if Darlene has no emotional attachment to DDP, it's still a very harrowing life that DDP has lived over these last few weeks and a life that by no means she should be experiencing over and over and over again. Still, all that said, I really feel like the ennui, the, the, the just complete and utter bleak 
picture of what's happening when she's talking to Alexa, he does speak to a little bit more. Did you notice the Patsy Cline poster on the wall? I didn't notice the Patsy Cline. I should have noticed the Patsy Cline. There's so much lost in this episode. I know. There's so much lost in this episode. It's right up your alley. It's right up my alley. There is a Patsy Cline poster on the wall. We do already know that DDP has a thing for country music. Uh, You talked to Grace Gummer about the the DDP of it all, didn't you? Yeah, I had an interview with Grace Gummer earlier in the week just doing kind of a little bit of a feature on her work as DDP this season. I really enjoyed it talking to her and you know she she really summed up ddp in a really great way of you know being that person uh who you know goes home listens to country music bad country music watches reality tv to fall asleep does other things to fall asleep and you don't know that person like you don't know that side of that person that that's all very foreign to everybody like everybody has their secret home side when they are alone and who is that person uh, i thought she talked about that in a really great way and it was really cool to see that reflected on the show again this week another scene with ddp and alexa apparently all of those alexa responses by the way are the authentic responses you get when you ask those questions yeah and good on sam esmail for for finding interesting things in that clearly there have been films like her built around that that concept and built around the idea of ai and the responses and these people in modern worlds that are carrying on friendships or relationships with with virtual people or virtual beings uh, and and it's so you can read the DDP talking to Alexa as we've seen before the DDP watching reality TV when she can't sleep at three in the morning, uh, engaging in anonymous, uh, seemingly anonymous cyber sex, uh, doing weird stuff like quote unquote weird. I should say I don't I don't judge it as weird, but doing the sorts of things we already as, established weird is good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And doing the sort of things, as you're saying, that everyone does behind closed doors and lives a private life when they're alone. Uh, we've already seen that. So this scene with Alexa, we can read on that level. But there's something in the end of these the, the, the conversation between her and Alexa. The, the questions start to be like, hey, wake me up in an hour. Uh, are we friends? What's your favorite color? Do you have a boyfriend? What's the color of your eyes? Uh, are you Doesn't happy? have eyes, but that is a beautiful light ring filled with color. Yeah. I mean, the light, look, that Alexa is very, uh, very proud of her light ring, and I don't think we should criticize. Uh, but infrared is Alexa's favorite color, which I think is hilarious. Of course, that's what a robot's favorite color would be. But then DDP gets into this, I think, more specific territory. And the kind of things, yes, you probably would be thinking after you were going home, having witnessed people getting murdered in front of you, having seen that happen for the second time in like a month. Yeah, you would be asking yourself these questions, and you would be feeling that's sort of real, just bleak, just existential angst. But she says, are you alone? Do you yeah. love me? And that's the kind of thing that she also would be and asking Alexa's herself. Like, Yo, slow down. Yeah, slow your role, <laughs> player. We're just friends. Like you bought me online. I don't, I don't roll like that. This is yeah. not our relationship. But yeah, that that's the kind of thing I think she would be asking Alexa if those were the thoughts that were on her mind because she had just encountered someone who had some specific meaning to her. Like, I think you can read that, that she would be having those thoughts even if it wasn't. But I think if you're wondering if that was somebody that had specific meaning to her, I think these thoughts really pop off the end of this scene for sure. Yeah, I completely, completely agree as the the number one DDDDP. Uh, did I add an extra D? There's a lot of Ds in there. <laughs> the, the extra D, one- the extra 
Mr. D is for definitely. As the, as the number one fan of that theory. You know I am a big fan of that one. And I, I don't know. I think that there's some other details that we can pour over with Dom in this episode. Uh, we talked about it already, but let's do some Python analysis. Let's look at those biceps that DDP is showing off in the hospital. Antonio, have we seen Dom's arms before? Have we seen her with tattoos before that you can recall? I don't recall these half sleeves. I really don't. And... I think you get into the duality right away with this, and we know that Dom has lived more than one life in some respects. We heard her story with White Rose, where she talked about how she was on one path, and then she changed, and she wasn't really sure why, and she ended up being an FBI agent. And even in her description of why she wants to be or why she wanted to be an FBI agent, there was a duality. There was a discussion of the beauty and the the disgust or the beauty and the danger or the beauty and the horrible things that happen in the universe, law and, and, and lawbreakers, and that this she's fascinated by both ends of it, and this was a perfect job for her. So there is the duality even expressed in her desire to be an agent but we're seeing the duality of her person in that she has these tatted up arms and she's lived a life that doesn't seem like button down fbi agent and we're only seeing that i think in this episode for the first time all right so we're seeing those for the first time i think that that is very interesting and now let's look at those pythons let's look at those tattoos from the perspective of do Dom and Darlene have history? Like, was Dom somebody else once upon a time? Was she somebody who is a far cry from being the federal agent? What we know of Dom's past is her conversation with White Rose when she was talking to White Rose and saying, you know, once upon a time, I was almost engaged. Keeps talking about her almost fiancé as a they. It was shortly after the failed proposal that Dom went ahead and decided to be a federal agent. Or maybe not shortly after. It may have been a little while. It was sometime after that incident. So that's where a lot of this comes from. You could see a tatted up Dom palling around with Darlene, who is definitely of the tatted up variety, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And we have talked a ton on this podcast about the Will Pond geography of it all, Josh, about the New Jersey geography and whether the Teaneck area, whether the Gloucester uh, or Gloucester or however you want to say it, uh, we get we get people emailing in every week when we talk about this, uh, if that is linked to the same Washington Township area as Darlene, Angela, and Elliot. This is an episode where White Rose talks about Angela and Elliot having this thing that happened to them be significant, be the kind of thing that defined who they are as people. And you can see that if Darlene or if, if DDP is from that same area, that she could have produced the same kind of thing and that this could have been a thing that happened with her as well. So this is in a definite possibility. I think we have to consider the fact that if they do reveal that Darlene and DDP have a history, then they're probably going to have breadcrumb trailed that back throughout the course of the season. I think seeing the tattoos on DDP doesn't point to Darlene directly, but as you're saying, points to somebody who had a more wild lifestyle in the past. So that if we learn later that she and Darlene were a thing, it makes sense because you think to yourself, I remember that that I thought it was weird that she had all those tattoos. And oh yeah, she told that story about that broken 
engagement. And she has seemed very weird in private. And there are these things going on that haven't made sense. And now that I find this thing out, those things all make a lot more sense. So it is just tattoos that we're seeing. And we have to be very careful, speaking of Lost, to assign too much meaning to a character's tattoos. Sure. On the other hand, the fact that we're seeing them for the first time this late in this second season and the fact that they do speak to a duality of that character does open the door for something like DDP. And I think that that's something that when we see the tattoos like that and we're already talking about DDP, I think it's definitely something to flag and talk about like we're doing now. All right. Well, you are advising being careful about the tattoos, but I'm going to be a little careless about the Please. tattoos. How, how about Go that? further. So, so, you know, these are not spoilers. We're reading the tea leaves here, or the tea neck leaves, if you would prefer, uh, about things that are going on on the show with the tattoos and everything. These are some bonus details from the two Mr. Robot, or two of the Mr. Robot interviews that I did this week. One with Grace Gummer, one with Cora Adana. During my conversation with Grace Gummer, she started talking about developing DDP, developing Dom, and doing that in in concert with Sam Esmail and how Dom was a fully formed character in many ways for Sam going into the season that Sam Esmail knew exactly where he wanted that character to go and what that character represented and what would be going on with that character this season. Um, there are certain little eccentricities that Dom has that come from Sam Esmail, the oral fixations quote unquote from Grace Gummer. Grace Gummer says that those are all Sam, the lollipops, the turkey sandwiches, stuff like that. That's all Sam. But she also says, I had a bunch of ideas about my character that ended up on the show, so it wasn't like it's my way or the highway. And I asked her if she could tell me, like, do you have an example? Do you have an example of something that you really wanted to bring to Dom that did wind up on the show? And I was surprised that she didn't have anything that she could she could tell me. She basically said, I don't know if I can talk about it. I don't know if you've seen it yet. This interview took place before I saw this week's episode. Uh, she, you know, kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit, trying to figure out if there was a non-spoilery way to to talk about this idea that she brought to the table, what she ultimately said was, just in terms of her appearance and what she wears, all of that stuff, I can't really say. In terms of her appearance, uh, Grace Gummer had an idea about Dom's appearance that made it onto the show that we had not seen as of this, uh, as of heading into this week's episode that she could not talk about. So plant a flag in that for a second and combine that with a question that I asked Cora Adana. Cora Adana, who is, again, the technology producer of the show, who I'm doing some email interviews with. So this is written correspondence, Cora Adana correspondence uh, <laughs> that is going on between the two of us. And I asked a bunch of questions. He answered the vast majority of them, but not all of them. Some questions were curiously left unanswered, and I found that very interesting. And one of the questions he left unanswered was this. During her checkup at the hospital, we see extensive tattoos on Dom's arms. Are those Grace Gummer's tattoos, or are they tattoos created specifically for the show? And if so, are those tattoos especially significant or about as significant as the story of how Jack Shepard got his tattoos? Which is to say, not very if you're not a lost person. So that is a question that I asked Coradana. Coradana did not answer it. Left it completely unanswered. Moved right past it. Turning back to the Grace Gummer interview, another curious quote that I will just leave out there is something that she said about Dom and her relationship with work and why she is so fiercely passionate about busting F society or solving what's going on here. She said, I think the work scenes aside, although you'll see more in the next couple of episodes that will reveal more about her and marry her personal life 
with her work. Oh, Curious no. word choice with Mary, but I don't think that I was being effed with, but maybe. So there will be something that's going to reveal Dom's personal life that will tie her closer to her work. And maybe that's going to be, like you said, just some rough past that stems from, you know, her early days in New Jersey, maybe related to Washington Township, maybe not. Who knows? But I think if you thread all of that together, plus the tattoos, plus thinking that Darlene is somebody in her past who may have proposed to her, Dom said no for whatever reason, soured Darlene on the concept of marriage so much that she broke up with Cisco once when Cisco proposed to her. For me, the picture's coming together that these two characters are linked. Yeah, you're all in on the DDDP. I'm all in on it. I am like 70% in. So I'm loving this. I think that, I think that there is a, there is a door that's going to be unlocked in this final episode. I do think that if DDDP is a thing, we're going to find out next week. I think so. Too. And that's I what that it, I think that ties into what you're saying Grace Gummer said about the personal life and all of that. So I do think that we, we can look forward to having an answer on this one at least by next week. I think if we see DDP doing that interview, we're going to know right away. I don't know if we're going to get the second end of that conversation. I think we thought we were going to get the second side of the conversation in the shootout uh, with the one where the Dark Army people roll up and shoot Cisco and Darlene and DDP and whoever else. I don't think we're going to get the second end of that i don't think we're ever going to see what ddp said to darlene in that moment do you uh i think it's not impossible because you know the show has played with the timeline so much this season and things have aired out of sequence the reason why i don't think that we'll see it this season is because we're already in the finale um and it would feel weird to backtrack to that moment now that we're already in the midst of the finale for that to be like a mid-finale scene feels structurally strange to me yeah, that that feels structurally strange to me as well, as well as the fact that we're beyond it, but not so far beyond it that it would be a meaningful flashback. I think the time to flashback would have been before DDP already got done in the hospital, got done talking to her boss, Santiago, got done going home and talking to Alexa. I think that structurally, you're right. I think the time to see that scene would have been earlier, even if it was in this first part of the finale, then it would be seeing it next time. But I think we can still have the same accomplishment and i like that if we do find out that ddp is a thing that that will be a mystery perhaps that will never get answered that we'll never ultimately see how they came together in that realm you have to think and, and we've talked about this on this podcast you have to think that ultimately we know how much angela was on the fbi's radar we know gideon goddard had talked to the fbi and given information we know theoretically that elliot from all of that would have been on the dark army's radar in some or not the dark army the fbi's radar in some way shape or form and if all those people were on the fbi's radar it makes sense as well that darlene would have been and if that's the case ddp may already have known that her ex-fiance was wrapped up in this i don't know if that's the case but it may be that that wasn't a as, as shocking of a moment as it could have been if ddp had no clue that darlene was wrapped up in this so that may be why we're not seeing it as well she may have already known there's a lot of the stuff that's going on in the background of this season uh with the dark army with the fbi with what has what have people known at what times that we are just not fully informed about and that that adds to the disorienting effect of this season and i think that could be one of them that the ddp has known about some of these people all along and if that's the case and she was previously engaged to darlene then she would have known as well that darlene may have been involved 
All right, so plant the flag. We will find out one way or the other. Hopefully, next week we will see if this is confirmed or not. I'm in. I'll dial it back from 100% to like 98%. But uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, that's good. we got to dial I'll, it back just 2%. I'll, you know, I'll dial it back 2%, but I feel really good about it. I think that that's where we're going. We shall see. Uh, before we get into Angela, since we already talked about the $2 trillion bailout that China is going to do for E-Corp here, why not talk about that quick scene with Philip Price in D.C. talking to Jack. Jack, Jack his buddy. Look Jack, at me, Jack, his buddy. The guy who previously had something on his face. Get that, that Philip off your Price face, had... Jack. Wipe your mouth, Jack. <laughs> Philip Price had a problem with. Yeah, this is, uh, this is great. I, this is the same room where Philip Price had talked to three people earlier in the season, one of whom was Jack. Presumably this is at the Department of Treasury in D.C. Presumably Jack is the Treasury Secretary. Uh, and Philip Price is, is strong-arming him. I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on this scene. Do you feel like you understand what's going on here? Talk it through. Grasp it. Get it. Okay, so let's talk about what Philip Price's e-coin strategy seems to be at this point, because we saw it in the previous, previously on for this episode. We saw the scene where White Rose is telling her valet or butler or whatever you want to call the guy, assistant, that Price is going with his e-coin strategy. We've seen throughout the season e-coin, not Bitcoin, but e-coin, which is e-corp's uh, electronic currency, emerging as a currency, that the collapse of the economy has opened the door for ecoin to emerge and that ecoin is important for evil corp and why is it important in this scene we find out a little bit more about it that philip price's goal with ecoin is to essentially use it to leverage loans not to back it with currency not to back coins at the government level with currency or back loans at the government level with currency not to do that but to use these ecoins which are fully controlled by ecorp keep in mind the department of treasury controls our currency currently the way you look at a dollar bill and if you look at all that that's all department of treasury backed currency if there are issues with the dollar the department of currency will affect the interest rate or will print more money or will do things like that to impact the economy that is their thing philip price is saying look I, you wouldn't bail me out. We were such a huge company. We were too big to fail that when we failed, everything around the country collapsed in such a way and you didn't have the ability to bail me out. Politically, for whatever reason, China, all of it, you couldn't do it. So what did I do? I went to my contact in China. I got $2 trillion for my company directly from China. Now I'm going to use that leverage to say, I want to thrust ecoin more into the public sphere and to do that by offering low interest ecoin based loans to people. This is not something where the government is going to back these loans via the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or whatever it stands for. The federal government's not going to back these. You're just going to say these are ecorp loans and and the ecorp is taking care of this via ecoins. And we see that we hear later in the episode when Angela goes to visit her lawyer that this is work that Philip Price's strategy has played out, that Jack did bow to what he's doing. Philip Price uses the argument that, look, if you don't do this, because of the whole, because of the vacuum, 
actual Bitcoin is going to emerge, and Bitcoin itself is not controlled by a corporation. It's not something you can look into or have oversight on. It's the Wild West of currency. And by the way, China is involved with Bitcoin, and they're controlling it. You need to go with my eCoin so that you can be involved and you can have oversight. It's way better than the alternative, and that seems to work. Does that all make sense to you at this point? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So that's what Philip Price is going for, and I I think that that leaves Philip Price open, and I think that E-Coin, Philip Price's Ecoin loans and his goal for all of this, I think that that is going to tie into what Stage 2 ultimately is. Because I do think that White Rose and the Dark Army are essentially at war with Philip Price and E-Corp. And I think Stage 2 is going to be an action against the E-Corp, E-Coin strategy. And I think that that really is going to be ultimately White Rose's checkmate move, is that Philip Price has gone all in, put all his chips on the table and said, after everything that happened, maybe I was complicit in the hack so that this vacuum would form so that I could get this E-Coin out there on the table, the next move White Rose is going to do, part of stage two, is taking that E-Coin down and taking Evil Corp down now that all their money is in this E-Coin strategy, now that that was what they put all their horses behind, that stage two is taking the legs out from underneath those horses. And I think that that's what we're going to see next week. That would be a very, very big defeat for Philip Price. The good news is defeats can still be profitable. Yes, defeats can still be profitable. Jack! Jack! Yeah, this is. Uh, I I I love Philip Price. I really love this guy. Oh, he's great. He's great. No, I can see that. I think that that's that seems to be the road. Uh, That seems to be the road. If this is this great chess match between Price and White Rose, that that could be stage two of this attack. It's, you know, we're, we're, you know, that's the hardest part is waiting out the aftermath of the five, nine hack, right? Giving enough time for Philip price to reorganize and get his business into this kind of shape and then cut that off at the knees as well. Uh, I, th- I think you could see that very, very easily next week. Yeah. He wants to rebuild the entire banking sector around evil corpse own e coin that he has funded through these zero interest loans from China. And you can imagine why white Rose would be like, yeah, you know what? Okay, zero interest loans. Not a great deal for me, but I'm going to do it. And you know why? Because I know I can take down your e-coins. Like, you're yeah. going down. And But when that happens, by the way, if China truly does control Bitcoin and cash is out the window, because we've seen the cash shortages and how that's playing out, and people aren't going to do business on credit or on paper like they were before, because there's no backing for that, and E-Corp is just far asunder, and these e-coin loans aren't going to work out either, then that vacuum will only be filled by China. China and the Dark Army and Bitcoin, and at that point, they do control basically the currency of the world. And that is, the at the end of the day, I think a win for White Rose. And defeats can still be profitable is a perfect mantra for Philip Price to have, because his strategy all along, I think, has been has involved taking advantage of the hack, whether or not he knew it was going to happen right, or not. Right, right, right. That was going to be my next question for you as you're kind of really rocking this conversation and rocking this through line. And I was curious about your take on this line that Price says where he says, uh, you know, Jack, this was always Jack. This was always the future. Uh, the five nine attacks just accelerated it. Uh, does, does he did Philip Price know that this was coming? Has he been leaning into? Is this something that he's just like reactively leaning into? Or is this where he was putting his is this the basket he was putting his eggs in? Was he always really ready for the fact that this is where he was going to go and maybe it just happened too fast? Or did he see this coming the whole way through, do you think? 
if you'll recall the post credit scene from season one, the the eyes wide shut Illuminati meeting room kind of scene with white with Philip Price and White Rose as Minister Zhang sitting by the fire it was very relaxing. It was very calming. It was very we know the person responsible. We're going to take action, you know. But Philip Price was also a little bit peeved. He was a little perturbed. But I gotta Looks say, like he was nursing a migraine at the very least. Yeah, but not necessarily also behaving the way a person would behave. If their whole world had just collapsed, he very clearly was taking it in stride. It was more. It was more like I'm exhausted. This yes. is tiring. Oh, this is uh, a lot to deal with. It's yes. going to be a lot of work, but not necessarily like how do I handle this? Right. It's more like oh, another thing. Yes. And throughout the course of this season, he has people have even remarked on it. Angela, for example, and others, have, and Terry Colby as well, have remarked on Philip Price's calmness and deme- calm demeanor in the face of all of this insanity. Like how, how are you able to? Keep keep it together like what are you doing that has been something that we have been pointed to throughout so i do think whether or not philip price knew the five nine hack happened or not he's the kind of guy when you speak of burrowing and foxholes who saw that as an opportunity and who realized like this is fleeting like i can take care of this i can guide us out of this terrible thing that has happened and but then but as we progress throughout the season his relationship with white rose very hot if he's run if he's ran cold the rest of the season he ran super hot in that contrast to the eyes wide shut by the fire just very calming scene when they had the cold rainy scene where they're walking around outside he's threatening to rain chaos down on white rose jack jack so all of this is all of this has been ultimately this is a philip price character that we've seen emerge throughout the course of this second season very calm in the face of public storms telling the treasury secretary to wipe his face off wipe your mouth dealing with all of these things that are emerging but when it comes to white rose being very very angry by the end of it and their their conflict becoming from two seemingly colleagues sitting by the side of a fire to two people directly at war and i really feel like white rose has outflanked him knowing that philip price is going all in on the ecoin the thing that i love about mr robot the show and how it has developed into this larger story about these two people uh, that are controlling the world essentially at war is that I'm not sure that Philip Price is truly checkmated. This may just be a check. Philip Price may have seen this coming uh, and may have a next move in play after whatever stage two is. And that's why I, I, I buy that Philip Price is, cannot just be so simply and easily defeated. And I buy that the threat to brain chaos wasn't just an empty and idle threat, that there could be something more that comes of that. So whether or not he knew the 5-9 hack was going down, whether or not he's going to be checked by what White rose or the dark army execute with stage two against the e-coin strategy i do think at the end of the day philip price won't be done because i think that he is a smart enough guy and we've seen throughout a calm enough guy and he's got a personal vendetta with white rose that that could that that could be changed the one thing i will say about this how about this when he says to jack like jack says how long you've been planning uh, this to come at me and what does he what does price say i don't have that price well price says uh Oh, come on, Jack. You've known me for long enough to know I don't give a shit about you. (laughs) Right? So Price is like, it's not personal. I don't care who you are. I don't care what's going on. That's the polar opposite to how he's behaving with White Rose right now. 
It's such a funny scene, though, when, when Jack is like, how long have you been planning this against me? And Philip Price just cracks up in his face. Don't hold a personal grudge just because you just lost. Just because you lost. Is what Philip Price says. But that seems to be what Philip Price is doing vis-a-vis White Rose. So I, I think that he's saying one thing to Jack, but doing another with Minister Zhang. And I think that that is ultimately the duality of Philip Price and the way that we see that guy being very calm in, in ordering the treasure secretary what to do and getting what he wants but he he has said there's a couple of rooms in the world where he's not the most powerful person and it seems like that really sticks in his craw with regard to white rose all right well you really rocked that that was great i mean that is that's what's going on in that storyline and i think the question really is how does it resolve is this checkmate is philip price about to enter territory that he's not gonna be able to walk away from and does checkmate even stop a guy like philip price from just flipping the board over and destroying all the pieces so i think we might be at that moment which is really really exciting one of the great things we've talked about this on a few of the recent podcasts is this idea of all of these different characters um you know so so many different people on this show who are so super smart and are actual geniuses in their own way in the universe of the show have great plans, carefully laid plans, really, really intricately woven ideas about how they're going to move forward in this game that's going on throughout Mr. Robot. And so often these plans just crumble. You know, even if it's a great plan, somebody's better plan just dwarfs it and destroys it. So this is a great thing that Philip Price has you know, engineered, has his e-coin strategy exactly where he wants it, perhaps, but that wouldn't stop it from getting completely cut under. Uh, and that's something that this show has been really great about this season, is counter plans to people's counter plans. Well, and that ties into what's happened with Elliot, right? That Elliot's plans seem to be to take down E-Corp, and that the hack and the, the encryption of all the data and all of that was a plan, but maybe there was a counter plan going on the whole time that Elliot wasn't privy to, but maybe Elliot had a second part of that plan that we as the audience weren't privy to. So you're right. That's why I feel like even if they execute stage two and it takes down Ecoin, if Philip Price still doesn't have another plan, that could be in play. And I think the show, as you're pointing out, has done a great job to introduce the fact that we're on this this back and forth. We're watching a tennis match where everyone's lives are at stake uh, and horrible things are happening with every serve of the ball. So that is, that is what we've seen from this show in this season that's why if stage two happens and it's a, a takedown of e-corp on this level that i don't think it's necessarily the end of philip price or e-corp maybe it is maybe we'll move on but i feel like once that happens on unless the next stage is elliot realizes that the dark army was so negative that elliot then has to lead their uprising against the dark army to take the united states back in some way shape or form from whatever he hath wrought uh then once e-corp is done the story does have some finale to it unless you go to that next stage of Elliot versus the Dark Army at that point. So it seems like right now Elliot is working with the Dark Army. All right. Well, let's uh, let's let's start moving into the Angela storyline. Let's go to the enchantment under the sea, if you would like. Angela. Let's go to that enchantment under the sea dance. Yes. Oh my God! You hear those horns blaring right now? <laughs> really good stuff. I love it. What's with all the Back to the Future? I mean, it's not like it's the first time that Back to the Future has been all over Mr. Robot. 
uh, we've seen Back to the Future references in the past. Angela and Elliot were supposed to be watching Back to the Future together as early as season one, early days of season one. Uh, I think the pilot of season one, in fact, she brings it up again in last week's episode. And we get some sweet uh, Enchantment Under the Sea jams playing here in this episode. What's the deal with this? Is this just fun because clearly the people who make Mr. Robot love Back to the Future or is there something more? I don't know that we've ever had as many questions in one week about one singular topic as we had people asking about this. Uh, We had lots of different tweets. We had lots of emails. Lots of people reaching out asking about the Back to the Future of it all, if you will. Uh, And and shout outs to everybody who did that. There were so many. Uh, People really recognize this instantly. I think Sam Esmail has stated that Back to the Future 2 is one of his favorite seven movies of all time. Uh, That is, it makes its way into the show vis-a-vis Elliot and it being his favorite movie. As you're pointing out, Angela reintroduced that last week. So there is that just surface connection. The the connection to the fact that the people that are involved with this show love Back to the Future and that these music cues come from Back to the Future as a way of saying, look, this is something we really love in the way that we had Where Is My Mind connected to the Fight Club story in season one, right? That it's something that orally brings up this memory of something that you remember that is similar to what you're doing. The problem with that, of course, is that Back to the Future is very much a story about time travel and about altering timelines and about that sort of intradimensional sci-fi that we have to be very careful with in Mr. Robot, which is a show that is more grounded in actual reality. And so I think a lot of people have been speculating throughout the course of this season especially that time travel may be some element of this. People are suggesting that White Rose is some kind of time lord. White Rose even says it. I'm a time master. I, I hack time. Time is very important. So look, White Rose couldn't be more time specific. Even what happens with Angela in this episode with the drawing of the fish tank and everything that's the drawing of the water out of there, everything that's happening there, uh, there's very time specific elements to this, the beeping of White Rose's watch. So time is a very present thing on this show. So time travel is coming to Mr. Robot. Is that's the thing where here. I'm not going to cross that bridge. A I have of- a time travel theory. I have a time travel theory. My theory is that the the whereabouts of Tyrell Wellick all season long, where has he been? How has no one been able to find him? Because he's been riding around the country in a time truck, a truck that is selling uh, time, the herbs. Oh, T-H-Y-M-E, a time yeah, so travel. He's, he's a time, time traveler. He's been time traveling all season long. Oh, and look. Now he's back, and Elliot's like, oh, he has to be real. I can smell the time all over him. That is a sage-like wisdom from you, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> my, I was going to say my wife's name is Rosemary, but you all know her name is Emily. I like when you pepper in uh, puns into the, uh, the discussion. <laughs> it really adds uh, a lot of flavor. Uh, to what it's we're talking about. Yeah, that is a, there is a lot of, there's, a, I don't think we have time for many more of those, right? So we have to be careful. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the back to the future of it all is, but that's more than, I mean, look, there were, there were what? There's Earth Angel at the end of the episode. Earth right? Angel. Yeah. Absolutely. Will you be mine? There's that. There's, uh, there's the, the night train, the horns in the car, as you're saying, the sacks. Uh, there is uh, Lindsey Buckingham's song, which uh, which plays. I think it's Time Bomb Town. This is the song that uh, Marty is awakened by and by the clock radio, I think, or when Doc Brown calls. And there's, so there's that uh, in Back to the Future. There is Davy Crockett, which plays in Back to the Future. And there's a, there's a tunnel scene here. Which which tunnel was that, by the way? 
Uh, I don't know which tunnel. Lincoln, that Holland, was. what's going on there? Well, she's definitely going to New Jersey. There's no question about it. So it depends on where in New Jersey she's going. Either one of those would work. Okay. All right. We need some uh, some Wiggler Roadway. Uh, some some Canadian. I'm not New a huge York tunnel. Analysis. I'm not a huge tunnel expert. I couldn't tell you too much about the tunnel side of the bridge and tunnel equation. Yeah, never pegged you for a bridge and tunnel guy. So, no. uh, but yeah, this is ultimately a lot of Back to the Future in this episode. It's a and lot. Ho- hopefully, it's just surface stuff. Hopefully, it's just fun to shout out, and hopefully none of it is building towards some major time travel reveal not time the herb that's my that's my impression i think that it, it serves three purposes in that a it sets a, it sets a mood for the scene anybody who doesn't get the reference uh there's still an impact with the soundtrack and the things that are going on there right uh right. the second thing is it does have some uh you know just surface connection it makes you think of something that you like and it's a it's a homage if you will by the creators i think this is the most likely thing that there's the the the, the element of homage there and that's fine the third thing is that it is hinting or maybe playing with uh viewers beliefs about time and introducing that into the debate without really getting us too far down that road but just putting that out there into the ether letting people chew on that a little bit having fun with the, the people on reddit shout out to the uh r slash mr robot uh subreddit there where people are, are really talking about robots actual robots androids uh, mk ultra mind control time travel all of it so i think that it it does feed that that beast and it gets people talking about the show on that level which i think is really fun i think sam esmail is a wonderful wonderful creator of television but is also a great fan of so many great things that have been created tv and film wise and i think it's impossible to not see that in his work and i love that about sam esmail i love that certain scenes feel like they came right out of kubrick or certain scenes feel like they came out of blade runner or certain scenes feel like they came out of back to the future I love that because as a person who likes all those things, I feel like the person who's making the show understands me, thinks like me, or thinks like I do, and and really feels like I do, ultimately. And as a result, I feel more of a connection to the show. So it serves that purpose as well. All right. uh, Let's get into this whole sequence. We were wondering what was happening with Angela at the end of last week's episode. Two people approach her after the kiss with Elliot on the subway car. We were wondering, is that her FBI tale? Of course, there's got to be FBI people with Angela on their radar, given how much Angela has been on Dom's radar. Turns out, not so much, unless the FBI tale is also Dark Army. But throughout the majority of this scene with Angela, we don't know exactly what's going on i mean angela rolls up to this house it seems like it's in new jersey it's filled with all sorts of strange art the mr softy theme is playing faintly in the background on a loop enough times to drive larry david insane uh and then she goes into this room and she's now suddenly part of the dharma initiative yeah she's part of the dharma initiative she's been brought in by those handlers i think what are their names josh philip and elizabeth that's right yeah, yeah just some suburban dark army peeps you know yeah and then real. they bring pay- Age in to interrogate her. Yes, this is real. Philip is wearing his Gregory suit. Taking a page out of the Americans playbook. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. This is ultimately, it's weird because the soundscape is great, right? When she's walking and you hear the sprinklers on the lawn, you hear planes flying over. So she's definitely probably somewhere close to Newark airport. She, you hear the Mr. Softy truck drive by, you hear dogs barking. This seems to be a suburban neighborhood and it's a lived in house. There's a tennis ball that tells them where to stop their van in their garage. There are things that would be in a garage in the garage, but once they get in the house, 
it's weird AF, bro. Like there are some crazy things in there. First of all, the walls are all white as she's walking down the hall to get into whatever Dharma station that is. The pictures on the wall have all the faces blacked out with some kind of colored tape. What's going on there? Yeah, I have no idea what that's all about. And she gets into the room, and then, yeah, she's in a room that is black, except for the only light coming in is from an aquarium light and from a skylight. There is what, what, what kind of fish is that? A koi? What's going on there? Uh, let's, go, let's not be koi. Let's just call it a koi. Let, oh, it's a red herring, like I said. But, yeah, there's a giant koi in a fish tank there. Uh, there is a table in the middle Cordy's of this room. Cordy's uncle. Yes, that's exactly what that is. Cordy's Uncle Coy is in the tank there, uh, and and there's a table, and there's on the table is a ancient computer, a Commodore is 64. Is the Coy is named Coy Adana? Coy Adana, and it's a, you could get into some Coy correspondence. Uh, yeah, there's there's all those things that are happening. This is so screwed up, man. It's so screwed up. You don't have a theory about the tape over the faces? I have one. Give me the theory. Let's hear it. Did you? Uh, we talked about this a little bit. I don't think you're on board with me on this, but I'm saying it because I I want to say it. Like say the, it, wom- the woman, it. the woman, the 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 Elizabeth, if you will. She didn't look a little bit maybe DDP ish to you. Yeah, this is something that Antonia and I talked about offline a little bit after watching the episode of the of the woman of the two people who have uh, Angela uh, and bring Angela to this house. Antonio, you really think that because this woman has reddish hair and has features that may be similar to Grace Gummers, that she is going to be DDP's mom? Then why not just cast Meryl Streep? <laughs> yeah, right. You think they could get Streep? I think they yeah. would have if they could have. Uh, good Streep reach. <laughs> But but ultimately, I don't think that it's DDP's mom. But I, I think, think that's the, too far for me. I think the door's open, and the, the only reason the door's even open to me at all is the faces are covered up, right? Like I don't know why those faces are covered up. I think the implication would be that Angela might recognize. I mean, they're not doing anything to cover their faces. The Philip and Elizabeth, the people that are bringing Angela in, they're not covering their faces. Why not just put a blindfold on Angela? I don't know. I don't know the answer to any of that. They could just be that the faces are covered up because we want to add an air of suspense and mystery, make this feel very Lynchian in nature. But Um, I would also say that, like, if they're trying to hide the faces from Angela because she's going to be able to recognize them, wouldn't it be much easier to just remove the artwork from the wall than to go and, like, post it on every single one with, like, these really carefully cut squares that are exactly face-sized? It looks like they are individual per uh, picture. Wouldn't you just knock all that shit off the wall hondo definitely i completely agree <laughs> and and i so i'm not saying that it is likely yeah. i'm just saying it's possible what i think is most likely is i think that this whole enterprise of them renditing her essentially but not black bagging her head putting her in the back of a van not talking to her wordlessly marching her down a hall in a weird suburban home while the mr softy music plays and putting her in that crazy room with a leaking fish tank all of this is by means of psychological control or psychological manipulation of angela I think the tape is there over those faces to rattle Angela, to have her psychologically screwed To rattle up, her cages? To rattle her cages, if you will, the Faraday cages, to put her in a position where she can be manipulated, she can be turned, if you will, that she can be talked to or evaluated at her, at her lowest ebb. I think this is all part of the psychological manipulation. Look, when we, and this is a horrible subject, but when we in the past as a country have tortured people, there are a lot of ways to go about it that don't involve 
involve physical pain, that involve psychological affect. You could turn lights on. You could keep people awake. You could play horrible music, whether it's the Barney the Dinosaur theme or death metal. Those are all things that we as a country have done to have a psychological impact on people. And I think this is a connection to what happens with Angela in this episode, which is a lot of really weird shit that is probably just designed to psychologically rattle her and get her into a position where you can properly evaluate where under pressure or under psychological manipulation, what would she do? What would she reveal? Or can she be controlled? Which I think is ultimately what White Rose's goal in this is. I should also add, I don't think Angela is the only person who's ever been put in that room and given and been given that treatment. Uh, we'll talk about what we see on the Commodore 64. When talk the disc about is it. Loaded. Let's get into it. Yeah. So there, the, the girl comes in, right? So Angela's in this room. We had a red carpet, a black wall, skylight, a koi uh, in the tank, and we've got the table with the Commodore 64, a red phone, and the book Lolita sitting there on the table. And that weird hang in there poster uh, of the kitten. That's really all we've got in this room. Am I right? Yeah, that seems to be it. Yeah, in two chairs. So Angela's looking at the hang in there poster when all of a sudden a mini Angela walks mini Angela <laughs> walks into the room, okay? Yeah, like You sure that's not Desmond and Penny's daughter and this isn't lost too? <sighs> Look, we'll have to get AJ Mast away in on that on post show recaps because this whole thing is so Lynchian that AJ's going to have a field day with yes. this. But yeah, it is a very weird weird thing to see same hairstyle, uh, blondish, pulled back in a high pony. Like, that's what's going on there. High pony. <laughs> yes. Yep. 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 So she's right there wearing the suit, uh, and she's interrogating, kind of, but asking Angela a series of really weird questions, ultimately. And all of this is, I think, by means of rattling Angela. But when we see her load the disc, this girl, the interrogator, let's call her Paige, if you will, or mini Angela, whatever you want to say. When she loads the disc, we see actual games on the disc. We see Pitfall, which is, of course, an arcade classic uh, and has been made on very basically every video game system there ever is. We see Maniac Mansion, which is a, a personal favorite of mine. Crazy to see it turning up in this episode on this disc, but definitely a game. Uh, and then we see a lot of things that aren't games or that aren't the as big a file size. They're called like tan book, tan book, blue book. I think There's ugly gre- red book, ugly red book, green book. To me, those are possibly files relating to previous interrogations like this. There don't seem to be actual games. They don't seem to be very large files like the games are that we see on this disc. If you look at the blocks that are taken up, the memory space, the games take up much more. These files seem to be very small. I think they could be related to other incidents like this. And then we see this fake game that she loads that is ultimately the the thrust of the questioning that happens. The land of Ecodelia. Land of Ecodelia. Ecodelia, right? Any, any significance to that name to you? The eco strikes me as very environmentally related. Ecological, uh, perhaps economical. Oh, also economical. So there are those two connections, both of which I think are connected to the, the themes of this series, whether it's the Washington Township leak being the ecological impact or everything that happened with 5-9 in the aftermath being the economic impact. But the land of Ecodelia seems to be a game uh, that involves asking you really uh, awkward personal questions like Eco- land of ecodelia seems to be a early form of a buzzfeed quiz josh <laughs> have you ever cried during sex is the first question that is the first question that they launch with that's pretty incredible uh and seeing like this little girl this mini angela shouting that out so strange very 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 bizarre very unsettling 
very unsettling. I, I, Angela obviously balks at it at first, and it takes some it takes some weird coercion to get and her. The girl's to, like, ah, oh, but they beat me. Ah. Yeah, look at my back. Look at these things that are on my back. And then Angela wants to play ball a little bit, and then she's inclined to help. And all of this, I think, as we find out, is by means of test. White Rose actually calls it a test. He actually says, she actually says. I just wanted to see, like, you you have valuable information. I wasn't sure exactly what you would release and under what circumstances. I need to know more about you. So this the quiz is, yeah, it's a BuzzFeed-like quiz. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But on some level, so are those Myers-Briggs personality tests that we've probably all taken that uh, seemingly represent themselves as defining or representing our characteristics and our personality, which are immutable or which are just our natural responses to things. And so it isn't that far afield that these weird questions actually do have some sort of psychological impact or that represents something psychologically to people, whether it's a BuzzFeed type thing or there's an algorithm there or whether it is something like a Myers-Briggs thing. These questions aren't that far afield to say giraffe or seagull and have somebody assign some psychological value that represents your personality to your answer to that question. So I really do think ultimately that that is really what this is about. I don't assign deeper meaning to these specific questions. Do you? I, I really don't. I don't. Um, I don't assign I you deeper have, meaning. I don't mean to interrupt. I know you have more problems with this scene than I do. Well, I, I don't know. And it's strange because it's like the it's the most lost-like scene that we've ever gotten on Mr. Robot, at least that I can think of immediately. Uh, and it's like one of my one of my most problematic scenes that I've encountered on Mr. Robot. And I'm such a Lost fan that why am I having trouble here? And it just feels like, it feels like those times on Lost, and even as a huge Lost fan, there are definitely things about it that I dislike. I'm very vocal about the stuff that I don't like about Lost. I love the show warts and all, but there are warts. And one of the things that Lost was not great at, especially retrospectively, is throwing up a whole bunch of confusing bananas crap uh, at the wall and basically saying, that banana has an origin story. That banana has an origin story and not delivering on it or just the implication that every single detail has this rich backstory that's going to be explored further. Every little weird inconsistency, every odd little thing that makes its way onto the show. And Mr. Robot has been a great show to drill down into, to analyze, to pick apart in glorious detail. We had a three-hour podcast last week, Antonio. Did so we? you and I, you and I have What is defin- time, Josh? Time <laughs> is a flat an, circle. It's an herb. It's an herb we've definitely (laughs) done our part in all that stuff but this was just where it like for me some of this just felt strange for the sake of being strange and even as a guy who says weird is good and loves weird it felt just a little a little too weird for me i think my biggest problem with it is the sight of this mini angela and the idea that this mini angela is dark army somehow it's just i have not been able to satisfyingly get my head around some of this stuff um it's certainly unsettling it makes you feel very uneasy i thought it was a dream sequence it feels like a very close cousin to the dream sequence or the vision sequence the crazy drug withdrawal scene from season one of mr robot early on in season four in uh, episode four of season one um there's some commonalities there i think especially with the fish with uncle koi uh, uh, and relating back to the giant sized cordy that is in that season one vision so i i kind of thought that you know we were in the midst of some sort of nightmare sequence here and when it turned out to be reality 
it was very disorienting to me. Um, and I, and I buy into this explanation of white Rose that this was a test. This is a game. It's basically to see how you are going to respond to it. A test of worthiness is how Corradonna says white Rose would classify it. Um, I get that, you know, really trying to throw Angela off with as much weird stuff as humanly possible is part of that experiment. But it just, I don't know. Uh, it, it's hard for me to explain in a coherent way other than to say it felt like we were getting messed around with. And I'm not sure that we were getting messed around with for any reason other than being messed around with, which is fine if that's the case. If that's to you know make you feel this dizzying sensation and this feeling of disorientation, I'm good with that because it certainly worked. But if there's deeper, intricate detail that you really need to analyze and unpack from all of these different questions that are featured in the land of Ecodelia, I feel like that's just too far for me and just a little bit too into the cutesy lost Easter eggs that never went anywhere. Um, it just, it, it grinds my gears just a little tiny bit. Grinds just a my little gears. Just a little tiny, tiny bit. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I get that. Uh, and I think that, look, it's meant to be disorienting, but I think it's meant to be disorienting to Angela. And I think that we as observers, as third party observers to that, I can't help but also be disoriented. We're not seeing the, the stage management of it. We're not seeing the planning and the blocking and the direction of it. We're not hearing the other end of of every phone call. So it's going to be disorienting to us as well. And that certainly is by design. But I think that that's so we can feel more like Angela is feeling in that scene and not so that we as a, as a third party, look, when you write something like this, right? And you said a dizziness, a swimming in the head. One of my favorite films of all time is Vertigo. And that is a title, Vertigo, that describes that feeling. But there is a key moment in that film where throughout the film, you have known everything only that the main character knows. And at some point in that film you learn a secret that the main character doesn't know and then for the last 20 to 30 minutes of that film the suspense comes from now that i know this thing that our main character doesn't know man what's going to happen when he finds out if he finds out how is this all going to play out and so you're disoriented throughout the the film until you learn the secret like the main character is but the disorientation after that comes from watching that main character spin throughout the the reaction of it and seeing how that all plays out and it, it, so there is that aspect of it. There is a choice that is made where we are kept in the dark on the true goals of what's happening here. I think that our, the service is paid to us by White Rose when White Rose tells Angela that was a test. Like all those things were by means of a test. There are even a couple specific things that White Rose lists and talks about by means of saying like, oh, yeah, the thing with the scars, that's makeup. That's basically to see if you have empathy or if you're gullible take your pick it doesn't matter which one but we're seeing on what level you can be manipulated as a result of those feelings uh, do you have empathy that can be taken advantage of are you gullible to the point that that can be taken advantage of and white rose says all this by means of saying look my my allies my people that i work with they would have killed you 90 days ago and 90 right. days ago by the way is i think before the hack so they would have killed her once her role in the story had played out getting that disc installed at evil corp at that point she already knew too much she had seen cisco's face she was personally involved she probably should have been killed then but white rose is playing a little bit different game with angela in this respect and at this point that the time in the game has come where white rose has to decide how angela can be used and keep in mind white rose even says like hey look philip price 
he seems to be doing all these crazy things in part because of you or in, in involving you in some way. So you fascinate me enough for me to really want to know more about you. So yeah, I gave you a really weird personality test that got your guard let down and put you in a situation where I felt like I could get natural and real answers out of you. Like I said, not unlike psychological torture in many respects, uh, certainly not to that degree, but it's the same principle. And I do think that's the principle we see playing out here. It just so happens that the narrative choice was made or the stylistic or directorial or whatever choice you want to call it was made to keep us as the audience in the dark on this greater plan as well. And that does just create atmosphere for the show. Make it feel like a dream. Make it feel like a very weird thing that we're experiencing so that when we watch the episode, we feel like Angela feels. And I think for me, it works a lot better in that respect. I also think the specific design of the game and the game questions and all of that is a shout out to Ultima 4, I think it is. I had it on the original Nintendo, and when I was young, it was the is hardest that the, the game. Quest for something, is that right? Yeah, and it was, it was like, it was the first game. Quest where of they, the Avatar, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly well. right, where you had to do things to become good, ultimately, and to pursue these virtues. And the game asked you questions at the beginning to determine, like, what your baseline was. Like, what are you strong in certain areas, weak in others? And it was one of the first games that really talked about moral choices. And Maniac Mansion in that realm is also a game where you make choices throughout the game. And the choices that you make could give you one version of the story or another. It's not a perfectly linear game. And it was one of the first games like that that wasn't perfectly linear. Keep in mind, this is a show that is a love letter to the things that Sam Esmail really cares about. Or that Corridana, their personal experiences from their life, they're writing this into the show. So in the room. Yeah, people in the room. I think this is a big part of that. I think that having this take the realm of that game, which was probably very influential to people that are involved with creating the show, is a part of that as well. And that's something that they remember this from their childhood, from their lifetime, and it's something they want to work into the show. So I think having it be a game is in large part in service to that as well. Yeah, I actually do remember playing Ultima 4 Quest of the Avatar, and I remember gaming that system, that initial like question and answer thing, so that I could get the paladin. I wanted to play as the paladin. That was always the guy that I wanted to play as, because I thought he looked cool. That being said, uh, and granted, this was a long time ago. I was playing this in the early 90s, late 80s, and I was a small child at that point. I just don't remember being asked if I've ever cried during sex. I yeah. don't think that that was baked into Ultima 4. And it wasn't a child who was asking you that, right? I think, it, I, and I honestly, just to be serious, I really do think it's like the, the mini Angela is probably my biggest hang up with that whole thing. It just, it feels, it feels so strange. And for her to be able to play ball the way that she was, not that there aren't good kid actors out there who actually act in movies and TV and why not in the universe of Mr. Robot, could the Dark Army not have access to a little kid who is very game to play along and stick to a script? But that just, I don't know, that, like, that, part, that aspect of it feels very off to me in-universe. It just doesn't feel right, but uh, we don't need to get hung up on it. I, I think that the, the overall feeling of dread and disorientation, all of that is accomplished, and I do think that's certainly the goal for getting Angela into a place where she is going to be amenable to talking to White Rose and hearing out White Rose's reasons for everything that White Rose has been doing, or at least as much as White Rose is willing to share with Angela. And certainly, it seems like White Rose is willing to share a lot. How much time did White Rose have for Elliot back in season one? Three minutes, I think. Yeah. Three, three minutes and nothing more, and we will never see each other again, White Rose said to Elliot once upon a time. White Rose allots 
28 minutes for Angela Moss, uh, decides that Angela is worthy of a conversation just shy of 30 minutes. That's a hell of a lot of time. Um, and we only see about five minutes of that conversation. I didn't keep track of how often the watch beeps goes off, but that's clearly a minute is passing. It seems like about five minutes of scene, maybe a little more, yeah, maybe a little six. bit less. Yeah. But there's still at least 20, a little bit more than that, 20 minutes of conversation that we do not see. That is convincing enough that when we see Angela again later in this episode after this whole crucible that she's through is finished she goes to her lawyer and tells her lawyer we're done don't you know that call that I that I left earlier that voicemail I left you before ignore it pretend like it didn't exist Angela who in the previous episode was on her way to confessing about her role in planting the femtocell and all of that from earlier in the season. She was so close to confessing her involvement in everything has now once again rebooted in a sense. Angela, who has spent all season long in the belly of the beast at E-Corp, now seems to be Team Dark Army. Yeah, this is causing a lot of speculation, and there, I mean, there you can you can point to a lot of different Reddit threads. You can point to a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of analysis that's going on online of people saying, like, is is there something more with Angela? Is she being mind controlled? Is was part of what happened with Elliot and Angela a larger plan that they were recruited from the dark to the Dark Army at a young age? That maybe there's some suppressed memory that Angela is more like Elliot in that regard than not like Elliot, that there are things Angela doesn't remember well or that Angela is controlled. And look, we know Angela's mother was taken, right? We know that she was part of the the people that were affected by the leak. We don't know really about uh, Angela's dad other than they have this bad relationship and it seems to be her fault. Like he seems to be a decent guy who cares about him and she seems to be in, in season one entirely motivated by protecting him to the point where she installs the disc in part because she doesn't want his financial details leaked out because she used his card or his bank account information to pay for her student loans or whatever it was. And she is protecting him by means of installing that disc by season two. She's writing him off. So how can you have a person that has such duality with one person in their life? How can she be doing this? We've seen her repeating these affirmations over and over. Is it a coincidence that white Rose asks her a question that taps right into that that basically says did you ever think that by saying something you could bring it into being if by imagining or believing something it would come true simply by will we've seen her actively doing that throughout this season trying to will things into being by repeating them or thinking them over and over how does white rose know that is just a lucky coincidence that white rose can ask that question that really hits home with angela or is there a bigger thing in play that's a fair question a lot of people are asking when it comes to Angela's motives. I think there has been some frustration, obviously, in the fan base of Mr. Robot with the Angela character. So if we were building to something bigger like that, I think that would be a payoff for that. You can discuss whether your mileage would vary on that or think about whether your mileage would vary on a a larger story regarding where Angela's mindset was. But I think the point is that she is malleable, that she can be moved around. Malleable? Malleable? Yeah, we'll say that again. Malikiable. Malikiable. Yeah, there's there. There's there's a double L uh, or a single L in this case. But yeah, um, you can ultimately <laughs> determine whether or not that's happening or not. That's that's you. That's that's for us to determine at this point. 
I'm not sure we're going to get a full answer on that this season. I really don't think that that's the case. I don't think we're going, if there is something like that in play, it seems like a lot to deal with in one episode. Maybe that's the case. Maybe White Rose went into that with Angela in those missing 22 minutes or whatever. Maybe not. I will say one of the other people we've seen White Rose as Minister Zhang spend that much time with was DDP. And again, with DDP, asking some very personal questions and in fact, revealing some very personal details, which didn't really, they they exposed White Rose a little bit. DDP immediately recognized that White Rose was leading her on a little bit, that White Rose was was telling her falsehoods when it came to her sister and those outfits. But that conversation did happen. And so what is it that that DDP and Angela have in common vis-a-vis White Rose? Like, why is White Rose interested in allotting that much time to both of them? Maybe the first time White Rose met Elliot that Elliot maybe isn't remembering was a lot longer than three minutes. Maybe it was another 28 minutes with Elliot. Maybe there was a very similar thing that happened with Elliot in the past that got him in bed with the Dark Army. Maybe Elliot was in Mr. Robot mode and doesn't remember that. Um, All those things, I think, are entirely possible. Whether or not Elliot is represented by Tan Book or Blue Book or Ugly Red Book or not, or whether one of those is Darlene, it could be that White Rose has already had those conversations with other people that are involved, and that when we find out that Stage 2 is Elliot and that Elliot is involved in the Dark Army, has Elliot already been flipped or recruited via White Rose's methods that we see you know, parts of in this episode? I think that those are valid questions to ask for sure i think so too and i obviously very very big deal i think that white rose says to angela uh that it's no coincidence that you and elliot became who you are after what happened with the washington township plant if i told you that your mother and his father died for a reason would it make a difference uh that you are who you are because of it you are at the intersection of all of it uh everything having to do with that um obviously whatever white rose says next is going to work with angela uh and it just makes me wonder we've been We've been so curious about what it is with the Washington Township plant that is so important to White Rose to begin with. Uh, How deep down the rabbit hole do we go with that? I mean, if she is saying here that your parents died for a reason, like, does it invite the question of how much did Angela's mother know about what she was involved in? Um, How much did Edward Alderson know about anything going on with Dark Army? Are they were they potentially Dark Army? Is that a possibility? Uh, So it opens up a lot of questions and it is very interesting and it's certainly very curious that white rose is so interested in angela who is already such a person of interest for philip price i think you could explain it away as easily as white rose is interested in the person who his art or her arch nemesis is invested in in angela and wants to scoop that person up for her side that's a great piece to have on the board if it's just that angela is very important to philip price maybe that's enough on its own but i do feel like it says there's something much bigger here going on and whether or not we get that next week in the finale maybe not um so i don't know i I, it's 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 intriguing it's very intriguing it's a very intriguing direction for angela and angela certainly seems to be you know drinking the kool-aid the dark army kool-aid by the end of this episode and you can imagine a world where the 20 the 22 minutes or whatever of that conversation that we don't see involve this in some way because what one of the things white rose said says after 
she talks about the the Mr. Alderson of it all, you and Elliot Alderson. I told you your mother and father died for a reason. Would that make a difference, et cetera, et cetera? White Rose also says, I'm going to prove to you why you need to drop your mission that you were so stubbornly holding on to. Okay? So if the mission that she's so stubbornly holding on to is to take down E Corp, we know that that's her mission. What What is White Rose going to tell her? What does she tell her in those 22 minutes that ultimately flips Angela? Maybe she reveals the, the, the grand plan that's been in place since the mid-90s that her mom and, and Elliot's dad did die for. Maybe she reveals stage two and how ultimately, look, we're on the same team. I'm going to take down E-Corp too, and here's what I've been doing to do it. Maybe it's that. But there is something that White Rose has in store that can convince El- Angela to drop that agenda. Angela, if we recall on the, the subway last episode, said to Elliot, like, we can't beat them. No matter what we do, like, they're going to always win. And here White Rose comes along saying, they're not always going to win, and here's why. I have this thing in play, and this is what it is. I'm going to convince you that you can drop your mission. And so Maybe that's part of it. Maybe there's a larger thing. There is some speculation people are pointing to, I think, that if you go all the way back to the first episode of this season, after Mr. Robot pushes young Elliot out the window and we see Elliot in the hospital and the doctor is saying no concussions, some lacerations, broken arm, Mrs. Robot, if you will, Mrs. Alderson, says to Mr. Alderson, like, look, you got fired. You don't have a job. We're going to have all these bills. How are we going to pay that? And Mr. Robot's response to that is, I told you there won't be any bills. And I think a lot of people are very much reading into that sentence as perhaps being representative of some bigger thing that was in play even at that time with Mr. Alderson and with White Rose and what at the time would have been either the nascent Dark Army or the Dark Army proper in the mid-90s regarding this plant, regarding some role that they played in it to have some greater impact on the world. I don't know if there will be no bills relates to that or not, but it's that sort of thing that is making people people wonder, I think, is there some greater plan that's going to date back way earlier than we as a viewing public know about this series and that is going to tie in Angela and Elliot and the Aldersons and uh, the the everybody that's involved in the story really uh, to the Dark Army or to that side of the event in some way uh, that's been in play throughout. I think that's a very fair question to be asking ourselves at this point. It would make sense that Angela would turn if there was something greater in play doesn't have to be mind control or implanting a second personality in them it could be something a lot less sci-fi-y and a lot more just look i I came to him with a proposition they were participating in this thing they helped me do it it's a bigger thing i want to get rid of the this thing happening in the u.s and and on and on and on so i don't know i think that there's a possibility of that and i think that this white rose scene speaks to that there's also the lolita book on the table uh lolita i think cordana gave you some really good answers about that. Uh, Lolita, really, the answers he gave speaks to the duality of what's going on. Is that right? Yeah, no, talked about basically what ended up being the biggest thorn in my side about how the young girl looks a lot like a young Angela. Uh, is that coincidental or deliberate? Corridana's response, I think it's safe to say that most things we do on this show are deliberate. The notion of doubles is prevalent in both Mr. Robot and Lolita. In our show, we have Elliot and Mr. Robot who are two sides of the same coin. I think it was part of White Rose's plan to have Angela confront a young girl who looked very much like her. Even in Lolita, you have the characters of Humbert and Quilty who function as doubles in throughout the story. Yeah, and 
There's been other Lolita references in this series. Uh, I think Darlene used a screen name that tied into a character of Lolita. She wore the glasses uh, that were very similar to what uh, Kubrick used in his uh, adaptation of the novel. So there are all of those connections to that. It, it's clear that in, in some way that is, again, tribute to something that Sam Esmail really, really likes and is important to him to, to play out in this show. But they can have fun with that on that level, or they can have it have a secondary impact, which is the doubles, which which is the duality, which is speaking to people can be more than one thing at once, or people can have two sides to their personality. Uh, in Elliot's case, it's very specifically manifested by Christian Slater prancing around around him. But in Angela's case, we haven't seen it as much, but we have seen her being very different. We've seen her on one level being the uh, the energetic corporate all safe employee who's trying very hard and who did have empathy and care about things. And we've seen her be cold and icy and chillingly effective as the E Corp employee who was working with an agenda and was being very smart, but was also being very cold while doing it. So we have seen two sides of Angela. We just haven't seen it be so psychologically manifested like we see with Mr. Robot. So it's not to say that Angela also doesn't have more, more than one aspect to her personality. Again, why I think this show is so so great is that these are multi-dimensional characters <laughs> and in some cases like too many dimensions right or possibly too many dimensions but we're not just getting a one-dimensional shallow character we're having a lot of depth and we're finding out more about that depth episode by episode and what we see with white rose and angela in this episode i think is in pursuance of that it's white rose finding out more about angela exploring that depth trying to figure out where her motivations are and doing so that so that she can use angela keeping in mind of course that Angela is Philip Price's favorite toy or that Angela is something that Philip Price is very sensitive to. This is an important piece in Philip Price's game and so it's important for White Rose to control that piece and I think that that's a part of it too. Yeah, lots to chew on. Lots and lots to chew on from and Angela, you know, the big center character of this episode for sure. I mean, as much as things get interesting with Elliot in a second here, uh, Angela is at the heart of the weirdest storyline in the episode for sure. And I think a really major development obviously took place with her that we don't understand the full gravity of quite yet. Uh, but very, very exciting stuff. Anything else from that story before we start talking about Elliot? I, again, the only thing I would add is that her poor lawyer, uh, Angela's <sighs> just like the worst client that lawyer must have by far. And I can't imagine it's close. Right? Like Angela, Angela. Just like calling her and being like, hey, let's work together. And then they, she, you know, goes in from New Jersey all the way into Manhattan, shows up at the bar, and Angela's like, yeah, you know, go home. I mean, uh, Angela panically calling this woman, and be like, yeah, I'm going to confess. Then shows up, hey, don't call me anymore. You called me! Yeah, they have a very, <laughs> they have a very abusive relationship, right? Like in season one, Angela gives her all the details that she needs on this case to get it going again vis-a-vis Terry Colby. And then and, she wants a job. Is this all just vengeance because right? she didn't get the job? Right. Then she wants a job and the lady's like, you don't belong here. Get out of my office. And then at the beginning of season two, uh, Angela has started working at Evil Corp and she's at the bar with her lawyer and she tells her lawyer like, look, I'm going to take the job. I decided I'm going to do it. They really value me there. And her lawyer's like, I don't think that's a good idea. We talked about this. And Angela's like, take a hike 
bank lawyer, and then Angela hooks up with that FBI agent. So she's there, there's a lot of push and pull going back and forth with Angela and this poor woman. <clears throat> Pardon me, but it ends with this "Don't call me again." Uh, yeah, so the, there's there's definitely that. It's great, and I, I like the bad penny metaphor as well. That Angela keeps turning up. That every time White Rose turns a corner or looks into something or wants to make a move at a certain part of the board, this piece is center to wherever White Rose wants to go. So it, it has become very important for White Rose to evaluate this piece and to figure out if this piece can be one that she can turn and use for her own purposes. And yeah, can this bad penny become a good penny? Right, exactly. And Or is that Desmond and Penny's daughter? I mean, yeah, there are bad, a, penny, bad penny Hume. There are a lot of options there. Uh, and so I like that. I like that White Rose is, is looking at Angela as maybe a vulnerability of Philip Price's, maybe something that can be exploited. Maybe that's a weakness. We already know that Philip Price doesn't tell anyone when his birthday is, but did tell Angela and wanted to go out to dinner with her that night and does think good things about her. And so maybe White Rose is thinking like, okay, this is a good exploit. Like I've always looked for a way against this guy. Finally found my loophole, Josh. Finally found the loophole. All right. Let's talk about Elliot, who also has found a loophole. His whole uh, mind awake, body asleep, mind awake, body asleep. Lo and behold, that worked. Elliot is the silent observer. He wakes up in his apartment, and Mr. Robot is there and does not seem to be aware of Elliot at all. Uh, does not seem to have any sense that he is being spied upon. That's awesome. This is a new superpower that Elliot Alderson suddenly has the ability to be undetected in Mr. Robot's world, has access to Mr. Robot's inner monologue. The first time we are hearing Christian Slater deliver an inner monologue in the same way that Rami Malek has been doing all season long makes you wonder if Mr. Robot has a friend of his own. Yeah, and who would that be? I mean, who are we going to cast as Christian Slater's Mr. Robot? Oh, my God. Is Jack Emilio Powell still Estevez. alive? Emilio yeah. Estevez, you like that? Yeah. Martin Sheen yeah, would be, be great. He'd be good, too. Lots of different <laughs> options on the table there. But, yeah, no, it's, it's, very, it's very cool. I wonder if this is something that we will see more of. I hope that it's something that we will see more of as we proceed forward in Mr. Robot. I love this idea of Elliot getting to be the silent observer, and that's a way for Elliot to have a little bit more access to what Mr. Robot's machinations are, to be the fly on the wall that Mr. Robot can't control in those moments. That's a really, really cool development, and it obviously pays off here that Elliot is able to spy on Mr. Robot, who is going off to meet with somebody to do something. There's going to be a taxi on 8th Avenue and 25th Street. He's going to head out and go to there. You know, it's really a bit of a walk from where, where he is, not to get into the Canadian New York of it all. And Mr. Robot is such a good New York show. But we see Elliot ripping through Washington Square Park, trying to find Mr. Robot. And 25th and 8th is decently far away from Washington Square Park. That's like at least a 20, 30-minute walk, I feel like. <laughs> I don't know. You tell me about Canadian New and York, then, Josh. And then they're going to go from there to Church and Chambers. Just walk to Church and Chambers. Church and Chambers, you want to walk there from Washington Square Park? That's fine with me. But to walk through Washington Square Park up to 25th and 8th and then take a cab to Church and Chambers seems backwards and like a waste of money. Hashtag Wiggler Geography. I'm just saying, I'm just putting all of that out there into the universe. I don't know what's going on here. I, I want to ask you this about the mind awake, body asleep, because I thought you had a good conversation with Cora Don about this. Put my mind a little bit at ease so that my body could be at ease about this. I don't think what we're seeing when Elliot wakes up is a lucid dream. Do you? So you, 
no, he's in reality. When yes. he when he wakes up and he is seeing Mr. Robot trolling through the room and going into maybe is that the bottom right? Is that the bottom right corner that Mr. Robot oh, is getting getting that menu from? We could get lost on there for a very long time. I think uh, you're Dark it, Army, by the way, for helping assist with that. I think so too. I think that Elliot seeing what Mr. Robot is up to, I don't see I don't see that as illusory. I see that as reality. I see that as Elliot getting to spy on himself when he is the version of himself that he normally doesn't have full access to. I think all of that's real. The part of that that concerns me, because I agree with you, and that's what I, in the X-Files way, want to believe, is that you can hear the mantra being repeated over and over in the soundscape after Elliot wakes up. If you listen closely, you can hear mind awake, body asleep mind awake, body asleep, being repeated after Elliot is already awake. And it's not Elliot repeating it. You don't see his lips moving. We don't see any of that. You just hear it echoing throughout that scene. So that's the only part that concerns me. And the really, the reason that, that we have to track this, of course, is because Tyrell freaking shows up, right? So is Tyrell showing up in a real world after White Rose has just said to Angela, Angela says, not the real world I even want it to be. White Rose says, I guess it depends on what your definition of real is and then we have elliot going right from that to elliot waking up mind awake body asleep mind awake body asleep so your definition of real into that there is some concern there that we could be witnessing a lucid dream where elliot is in control of what's happening but is in fact unconscious and it's not actually happening in reality like you i want to believe that what we're seeing is a form of elliot's reality in that he's awake and things are going on there could be other clues that say maybe this isn't possible your geography could actually be part of that the weird swap meet that's going on is that washington square park like you said yeah that's where he's going yeah that he's the the, the swap meet that goes on in washington square park i think there are other potential characters from the series that might be there some people have seen the, the the best turkey sandwich maker in all of new york there other people have seen terry colby shambling around are yeah, you buying that I saw Terry Colby too. It's either Terry Colby or that was my father. Oh my gosh! Well, I can't tell. I can't tell which, but it was one of them. Josh, do you happen to see your father in weird public places? Do we need to talk about this? Are you, we don't do want. You, no, we don't need to talk about is it. Is there a uh, wig bot in play here? No, let's stay away from the wig bot. Go okay, from the we wig will. Bot. We will. Um, we'll table that for another time. But yeah, I mean, look, we're, we we get into the point where this all starts with a very conveniently named Red Wheelbarrow Barbecue. And that red wheelbarrow is, of course, something that has come up in this season before, that it was it was written on the notebook, right, that Elliot had, uh, that it is something that we've seen throughout this red wheelbarrow analysis. And again, we talked about it a little bit, right? We talked, that's the name of the book that they're putting out, the Mr. Robot book, right? That is indeed the name of the book. Yeah. yeah. So the red wheelbarrow there, it's just almost so convenient that that happens to be the name on the flyer. The red wheelbarrow, as we previously talked about, was a short poem by William Carlos Williams that is really all structure, that is very little content. That I think the poem itself has like I don't know, 16 words and that it all depends on the structure of the poem and how you read the words together, uh, what meaning the poem has to you but it is uh, it is ultimately that's what the red wheelbarrow reference is pointing back to i don't know is it just convenient to you josh that this flyer is called red wheelbarrow no that's troubling (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's certainly troubling and it certainly could speak to the idea that elliot is in some sort of dream state for the rest of this episode uh and that it isn't real or it's just like 
I don't know, more in-universe hype for the book that's coming along. I think you could take it either way. I, you know, I, I also want to believe that this is real. I choose to believe that this is real until proven otherwise, but that's troubling. It's troubling that this is on there. The Red Barrow BBQ menu that I am looking at right now, not in person, but on the screen. I was going to say, if uh, it's real, you should get some for lunch because it sounded pretty good. No, so that's, that's a little bit alarming. A little bit alarming. But what Mr. Robot goes through, the complicated uh, cipher, if you will, that was a direct shout-out to the DEFCON conference, DEFCON 22, uh, the almost the very similar steps, a uh, very similar setup. That was very much a tribute to that and a call out to the people. DEFCON is a hacker conference that participated in that, that challenge, that puzzle challenge. So that is, that is a direct reference to that. And it, it features from, it features from that. And so I wouldn't read too much into that otherwise, except to say that that is very much where that is based from. And that's sort of shout out and the tip of the hat to that. But yeah, this whole scene disorienting, like I said, the soundscape does it the fact that it says red wheelbarrow does it so this is this is this is absolutely all of those things are are concerning but like you i want to believe because elliot wakes up he he gets there mr robot leaves the room elliot has disappeared i think it's great mind awake body asleep elliot's gone mr robot leaves but then elliot is there yeah, Elliot's there. Elliot, you know, he catches the door. He goes out of the apartment with Mr. Robot. That's a cool little visual touch, I think. Uh, but he's able to follow Mr. Robot through Washington Square Park, apparently walks all the way up to 25th and 8th Avenue because that's a thing that you're going to do. Gets into a taxi cab after he realizes, I'm not following Mr. Robot. I am Mr. Robot. What am I doing here? So he gets into the cab. The cab driver knows him by name, knows Elliot. Elliot is very confused by this. Apparently, the cab driver doesn't know the address that Elliot is supposed to go to. Yeah, whoever set this up did not do a very good job. Like, they hired the cabbie to show up at a specific spot, but didn't give them directions where to go next. But yeah, the cab driver knows Elliot, knows his name, uh, knows he's supposed to be there. There's a lot of Arabic, Egyptian Arabic that's going on. Sam Esmail, Rami Malek, both Egyptian uh, or American. So that is ultimately what I think a great connection there. But nothing is really said in that Egyptian Arabic. The people that have translated it have found the guy does say something like, I can't believe I agree to take this job or I can't believe I agreed to do this. So that is at least part show that he was specifically hired for this purpose. We don't ultimately know what it is. Like you said, it seems like some of it might be walkable. They get kicked out of the cab at some point. Uh, and they end up ultimately pretty close to where they need to be anyway. So I don't know what role this cab driver serves or what function is. But yeah, Elliot walks up. I'm Mr. Robot. What am I worried about? Uh, this is ultimately what's happening. And yeah, gets in the cab, doesn't know where to go. But yeah, deus sex uh, Tyrell here, uh, or somebody just shows up at the end and says, oh, here, let me fix that for you. I know the address. And yeah, it's Tyrell, Josh. It's Tyrell. Tyrell's back. He is in the car. He is acting so casual about everything. I think that that's a big piece of people saying this feels a little anticlimactic that here's Tyrell back on this show. I think it's because it's delivered in that way. You know, it's really casual of Tyrell just hopping into the taxi, giving the address. Elliot is bugging out, but Tyrell is not tweaking out at all, is basically just saying, don't worry, we're safe. 
everything is good. We got to be a little bit careful, but everything's cool. Our partners have proven to be very influential. He seems really, really chill about the thing. And I think that his chillness maybe causes other people to be a little bit more chill about this than they otherwise would be. I also think that this doesn't benefit uh, from, I, I think that this is one of the things that benefits the least from breaking the finale up is dropping Tyrell in this moment. I think that is a big part of why it plays out. Like if you could just go immediately into the next scenes with Tyrell, that's so awesome. But now having to wait a week after that, I feel like that's probably harder. And I think that that is, uh, you know, an unfortunate side effect of breaking the finale apart two weeks. Yeah. Shout out to Tom Tumillo, a big supporter of post-show recaps in the podcast we do. Tom, I think, had some major problems with this episode, thinking that it might have been the worst of the entire series. Uh, And I understand the concerns there. And I do think a large part of it is because it was probably supposed to be two two parts and and it got separated into one. And so this Tyrell thing does feel like an ending that is a little bit cliffhangery, yes, but also very much tacked on to the end of something. And it's just a tease, if you will. Uh, and it might, might have been better if it had been just a tease, where Elliot was fighting with the cab driver and Tyrell showed up, and that was that. It was not presented in that way. It was presented as though we were going to continue and not end this episode on this note. And so I do think that it does in some way suffer from that. You can imagine, think about how episode one of this season ended. It ends with Elliot on the phone with Tyrell. Is it really you, Barnsois Elliot? And then here we are. Tyrell just shows up and says, we have to be careful. Like he's, he's, it's all business as though Elliot's been talking to him the whole time. And right. this is just, it's very nonchalant, if you will. It is not a man, where have you been my whole life? Or man, how have things been going? It's very much like we have to be careful. There's where we need to go. And I, I do, I mean, I love that Tyrell is back. I'm hoping Tyrell is back for real, for real, that Mr. Robot was lying, that Tyrell wasn't murdered. But I think there's a strong possibility, Josh, and this isn't, I'm not, not going to plant all my flags in this theory, but I think it's worth noting. There's been a lot of talk about Tyrell. Kimberly Castro has been uh, messaging me a lot with some very valid points about how there is something deeper between Tyrell and Elliot. There is some belief that maybe they're part of the same person. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast. Others are really shipping Tyrell as a thing. I have not been on Tyrell yet. You've been even more out than I have. However, I think it is possible that we exist in a universe where Tyrell was a separate person in season one. Tyrell was killed at some point. Tyrell is actually dead now. And Tyrell is now another ghost in Elliot's life. Another person that is dead that is still manifesting to Elliot as being alive in the way that Mr. Robot is. That if Mr. Robot is the father and Elliot's the son, that Tyrell is the Holy Ghost, if you will, to complete that trinity. I think there's a strong possibility that even if Tyrell was real at one point, he's not real now and this specter is part of Elliot's imagination. And what's the what's the big thing that's fueling that for you right now based on this Tyrell scene? Certainly he gets in the cab and Elliot starts freaking out and is in a really great way is saying to the cab driver, Do you see him? Yes. Is he real? Am I and like Tyrell is starting to really panic about it as well and is also talking to the driver. Um so Elliot is openly expressing his questioning of this man's existence. Is this person really here or am I losing my mind even worse? Uh so it's on the show, but what is it other than that that is 
getting you to think about the idea that Tyrell might not be here in the car. Yeah, and again, the cab driver in this scene does not reveal anything. He says something to the effect of, I think this guy's blowing a fuse. And by that, he means like short-circuiting. Like, I think this guy's crazy. And I, I don't know that you can read that either way, obviously. Crazy, why is he asking me something that's obviously true? Or crazy, why is he asking me something that is obviously not true? So that doesn't really shed any light on it. The part of it that starts to concern me a little more is, if you go back and watch this again, Tyrell tries to laugh it off. Tyrell is very uncomfortable with it. Tyrell is like, Elliot, what are you doing? And he starts shouting like, Elliot, stop. Like why, you know, he's concerned about it. And maybe that's because Tyrell is the most wanted man in the world. Yeah, I was just going to say, like if this taxi pulls over and now they're on the streets, it's not a great place for Tyrell Wellick to be right now. Fair enough. There's a valid reason there and and that's part of it. But I think that, uh, and, and you, look, I, how do you say his last name? Martin... Martin Wallstrom. Martin, let's say Wallstrom. Wallstrom, Wallstrom, whatever it is. Martin Wall Street. He comes in and his performance doesn't seem to me to be the same as classic Tyrell. There is something different about it. And it it, it does, he's not as like gregarious. He's not, he's more businesslike. It just doesn't seem like this is the Tyrell that I remember. Uh, I think there's a little something different going on there. Accent seems maybe a little different. You feel that way too? Well, I noticed that there's definitely something that feels a little bit off about Tyrell, and I think it could come down to a few things, um, ignoring the ghost possibility for now. I think it could come down to the fact that we haven't seen this guy on the show in forever. It feels weird to have Tyrell back on the show. You know, for all of our hoping to get Tyrell back in the mix, we just spent basically an entire season without him, save for the odd flashback, weird dream sequence appearance here and there. Uh, Otherwise, he's been gone. And we've been watching this story move on without that character that I think fitting him back into the puzzle, it's like the kind of thing where like the puzzle has warped a little bit that Tyrell, like it's going to take some work to get him to fit perfectly back into the picture. At least that's how I felt about it. Uh, So I think that that's one thing. And then I think another interpretation of why he's coming across different, why maybe he is a little more confident, why he's calm, why he isn't, you know, the guy who was really on the cliff's edge the last time we saw him. Talking about gods. Yeah, talking about gods, cracking under the pressure, having just freshly murdered someone. Uh, You know, the last time we saw Tyrell was like basically like 24, 72 hours after having killed Sharon Knowles. Was really still very, very close to that and was just out there on a limb uh, and is finding out about Coney Island and F Society and everything like that. That's where we leave him off. Lots of time has passed. At the very least, 86 days. We are probably in the 90s by now, maybe getting close to that day 95 that I thought about as a possibility a couple weeks ago. Yes. Maybe that's where we're moving toward. And a lot can change for people in that amount of time, especially a guy like Tyrell, who would be the most wanted person on Earth, who would be working carefully with our investors, as he says to Elliot at one point, working on what stage two actually is if Tyrell is physically in the mix and is putting sweat into this project. Uh, This could be a guy who has changed very much and believes very much in the cause that he has now signed on for, having told Elliot at the end of season one, bring me into this. I want to know everything. Now 90-some-odd days have passed, and the Tyrell that we know now may be a very galvanized, driven individual in the midst of this cause. And that could be why he's acting differently, if this is a real Tyrell. It's also possible that, and I, and I, I think that that's all, I mean, I'm on point with that. I agree with that. I think those are all valid readings. I think it's also possible that what we're seeing 
at this point is a Tyrell who expects Elliot to know more about what's going on. And it, let's assume that Elliot is a quote unquote master as the dark army has labeled him. Let's say that Elliot is one of the two people that Philip Price isn't more powerful than let's say that Elliot represents the, the prime mover or one of the key hands in play stage two is his plan. Tyrell is expecting Elliot to be on the same page with him. And when Tyrell shows up in the cab and Elliot's like, who the F are you? What are you doing here? Are you, I can't believe I'm seeing you right now and has seemingly forgotten everything they talked about in those three days and has seemingly forgotten whatever same page they may have gotten on of course tyrell is going to respond to that in a weird awkward not normal way because elliot is presenting in a way that really rattles tyrell i don't understand like i thought we were i thought we were good are you really saying this like how can this be elliot what are you doing so i think that's a part of it as well part of it that that confuses me or that makes me wonder and i we talked about this a little bit uh, offline i'd like to get you online talking just quickly about this elliot says look you can't trust me we know that this is no longer a question of what i'm seeing we know that's not reliable the real question is what i'm not seeing and what do you think that means in terms of tyrell the plan all of it yeah i think that that's a really great line from elliot and i I feel like it's one of the most self-aware you know pieces of dialogue we've gotten out of elliot alderson of like there's no longer a question that i am reliable i am unreliable and what i am seeing is not what we should be taking at face value what am i missing so is this a scene in the taxi cab that's worth like analyzing in uber detail i mean it's not an uber yeah, it's taxi a taxi detail yeah, I got you. uh you know are we really really gonna are, are we being asked in this moment to really examine what's going on here like do we want to read uh the taxi association's note on the back do we want to pay attention to any id information for the driver anything like that no. maybe you know bottom maybe, right bottom right bottom right bottom right i don't know that's not where i'm at with it i think it, it it more to me means you know he knows that we his friend the audience know more about any given situation than he does uh what am i not seeing right now him asking us to help with that information that's stuff that we do know to some extent that Elliot does not. Elliot does not know that he is the architect of this so-called stage two. Darlene knows that. Darlene figured that out. Darlene overheard that when she was listening in on the bug. Cisco is aware of that because Darlene has made Cisco aware of that. Cisco is probably not aware of anything anymore because Cisco is probably dead. And Darlene is very likely locked up. This information never got to Elliot. So when Elliot is saying, what am I seeing here? What am I not seeing here? What is the, what is the thing that I am missing? Elliot is missing key information that we have known for a few episodes now. That Elliot is this co-architect, if not outright architect, of Stage 2. Stage 2 is his plan, is what we were told. Elliot meeting with Tyrell Wellick. Why am I meeting with Tyrell? What am I missing here? Why was I set to meet with Tyrell Wellick and go down to Chambers and Church? That's stuff that maybe we can put together a little bit but Elliot himself can't put together yet. Yeah, and I think that's what he's not seeing. I think you're right about that. I think that I wasn't sure about that. And talking to you put my mind at ease a little bit because I was of the mindset and I was want to bottom right that. I was want to look at the cab. I was want to say we're not seeing. The other thing is one thing we're not seeing in this scene, of course, is Mr. Robot. Like that is one thing that, that Elliot's not seeing when he sees Tyrell. He's not seeing Mr. Robot and Tyrell at the same time. Now, that's because Elliot is Mr. Robot, and we're not sure 
or ultimately what form he's in right before he gets in the cab. Of course, as you pointed out, he says, what am I worried about finding Mr. Robot? I forgot. I'm him. Like, that's where I need to go right there. So that's maybe why he's not seeing that. But I think more to the point, I think you're right. Like, what he's not seeing is what he doesn't know about, what he's in the dark, and not the Dark Army, about, which is this plan that he formed, which is stage two, which is those three days while he was under. There's a lot that Elliot's not seeing in terms of the greater plan because he's in the dark on it, even though he was probably part of forging it. May have, in fact, been the one who did forge it, if it only relates to stage two. So Elliot is not seeing all of the aspects of what is going on because he just has forgotten. When they get out of the cab, Tyrell says, enough of these games. Have you forgotten everything? Look, Dark Army told me that the stage two is ready, and when you see it, you're going to be pleased. It worked, Elliot. It's up to us now. Let me show you. So it does seem like if the if the plan was to get Philip Price to go put all his chips on the table with regard to this e-coin strategy and to expose himself in that way, then stage two, what, what they have to do, what Tyrell and Elliot have to do, has to be something in response to that. That causes a problem with that. That takes e, that takes E-Corp well and truly fully down. I don't know what that's going to be, but that does seem to be like what Tyrell and Elliot's role are, is coming up, is to execute stage two that Elliot planned, that it did everything that they thought would work, did work. I mean, we know the hack worked, but what else needed to work after that to get them in a position to execute the next stage? I think it has to be Philip Price sticking his neck out, going all in on this other e-coin strategy. And I think that their next job has to be taking that down. And what Elliot's not seeing is this has been his plan all along. If you think back to the flashback episode at the beginning uh, when Elliot and Darlene are at Halloween, I think that's in it one, that episode. In, yeah, in it, it is. In, in it one. When he says that the, what comes after, that's the hardest That's part. exactly right. He's already got his mind on it at that point. And so this is probably something he's planned and been part of the planning on all along. And so the question is, like, why did he forget? So Tyrell probably does seem rattled because here's this guy who I've been following um, that, that, you know, that has some greater thing. The part of that that concerns me a little bit is at some point in season one, Tyrell says to Joanna, like, at first I thought this guy was just a tech, but now I see he's got something bigger. So Tyrell hasn't been in on the plan from the jump, I don't think. Uh, but at some point, Tyrell was brought into the circle of trust and has worked with Elliot on that, and now they're going to execute stage two together. I don't know what Tyrell's larger goal is. Revenge against Philip Price? Revenge against That's E-Corp? always been murky. I mean, power. Right. Uh, you know, obviously, power is something that he's been driven for, but why is what we've not known. Right. Um, and what form did he want power in? He wanted to be CTO for so long. CTO. So that was at least his goal back then. Yes, CTO. Uh, but what's his goal now? What's his specific goal now is murky, but it's always been power baseline. It's just why is, you know, has been less clear. I mean, power is a powerful motivator of course and maybe there doesn't need to be a why beyond that some people are just driven and other people are really driven uh and maybe he's just one of those you know one of these very uber driven or taxi driven in this case you know just one of those people but we don't know the why um my question this is the why that i have for you let's you know let's let's play ball with the idea that maybe tyrell isn't there and Tyrell is this Holy Ghost. And Tyrell is now a new manifestation of Elliot. I think in that, I could accept that as long as we are accepting that Tyrell has been real in the past. Uh, there is a flesh and blood Tyrell that has appeared on the show, maybe dead in this moment, now maybe appearing as an apparition for Elliot. Why 
That's my question. Why, why would that be the case, both in terms of are Elliot and Tyrell, are they close enough that this is a person that would manifest for Elliot? Like, this is a person that Elliot would choose to start seeing, even subconsciously, that now Tyrell is along for the ride. I don't feel like there was enough of a closeness between those characters in season one to justify that for me, other than the fact that Elliot has obviously been really ripped up over the possibility that he killed a man, and maybe he actually did kill a man, and so that murder victim is coming along for the ride. Maybe, maybe that's it. But outside of that, I'd be very confused as to why Tyrell is now suddenly a manifestation in Elliot's life. And what's more, the other why would be the why for the show. What utility does it serve to now have Tyrell Wellick back in the mix, but only as some sort of vision for Elliot to contend with? Doesn't that dampen the relationship between Elliot and Mr. Robot, which is so central to the core of the show, that Elliot is dealing with this duality, that he is dealing with this other half of himself? To now split that into thirds, I feel like, just dilutes that in a way that's not really productive. Um, so I feel like having Tyrell be squirreled away all season long, putting him on lockdown, throwing him in the trunk, literally in some cases, and not letting him see error until here we are in the penultimate hour of the series or penultimate installment of the season. Um, I don't know why you go through all of that trouble just to make him a vision, just to make him another vision for Elliot to contend with, unless he had, you know, or rather that he, I, I feel like the better option for every, for Elliot as a character, for the story at large, for the show at large, is that Tyrell has been doing something that we haven't seen, and now we are about to see it. So I think that it's on the table that this is not actually Tyrell. Certainly it's out in the air as Elliot shouts it out, and we've talked through the possibility here. But I just feel like it's the wrong move. And if that's the direction they're going in, I feel like that's got to be sold very, very well as to why that's important. Why it's important that Tyrell died and is still along for the ride as just some sort of projection that Elliot is now seeing alongside Mr. Robot. That's got to be really convincingly sold. Otherwise, it just feels like a distraction, and I'm not sure why we're going down that route. Yeah, I think you're right about the second part of that. And, of course, that's something that can be that can be cured or that can be fixed if, if we're narratively exposing more of the story. But, but you're right about the first part especially in that from what we saw in Season 1, the manifestation of Tyrell doesn't make as much sense as maybe Elliot seeing his mother, for example, would. Or Elliot seeing another more influential character. Elliot seeing Gideon would make as much sense as Elliot seeing Tyrell. Right. But I will say this. We have always speculated that there was more to Elliot and Tyrell and there was more to their relationship than we actually saw on screen in season one. The big that would scene, have to be the case. The big, know, scene, like, the big scene that represents that, right, is Mr. Robot and Tyrell in the cab. Right? right. When Mr. Robot is meeting with Tyrell and they clearly seem to know each other and have more of a on, on, on the same page communication than Elliot and Tyrell do throughout the course of that first season. Right. And that scene in the cab is like represented like, okay, you know, there may be more going on there. You're right. That would have to be the case for Tyrell to have that kind of value. There would have to be a lot more to them than that. I have always maintained that I think we're going to fill in those blanks. I don't know if we're going to fill them in next episode, but I do think we're going to find out what happened in the three days after. I do think we're going to find out more about the nature of the Elliot and Tyrell relationship from the jump or as it evolved. I do think we're going to find that out. So it could be that that 
that uh, metric that you're using to analyze the value of Tyrell showing up as to the why could be more significant in terms of its value as we get more information. Uh, as far as why, which I'm good with, but they have to. Con- it has to be convincing. It has to be convincing. 100% agree. That's something that they're going to have to really stick the landing on if they're going with that. If Tyrell is truly, as you might put it, an Earth Angel, as he's somebody who has come <laughs> sure, back yeah. as this song right. is playing, right? If that's the case, the other thing that is possible is that I can understand them writing themselves to a point where they feel like, okay, we know that Elliot is going to be a darker character than we're letting on right now. Partly because of the Mr. Robot side of him, partly because of this is going to be a character that we want to make a little darker than we are representing on the surface. So we know that he's ultimately going to be a darker character. If that's the guy that you know you're writing, it makes sense that he does reach a point with Tyrell where Tyrell knows too much and he has to kill him. Like he just has to get rid of him. And that could be the motivation for Elliot killing Tyrell at that point. But again, we need more value. That's why you kill Tyrell is what I'm saying. That's the narrative reason for it. Because otherwise, just keep him alive and have him play the role in the story as a guy who's alive. You don't need to kill him and bring him back as a ghost. But I think if you... I am only basing this on the fact that Sam Esmail went on record saying the prison thing and Elliot lying about it, that made the most sense to what this character would do in that scenario. So yeah, I know we said we're not going to be this show where you have to analyze everything. Is it real? Is it fake? Whatever. But we went with that. Elliot lying about the prison thing because we felt that was true to the character and again if they feel the character is dark what would be true to that character is not letting tyrell live once he's been involved in the execution of the hack it's killing him and so maybe that's why they had to kill him at the end of season one because they felt like he knew too much and this character would kill him and that's why if they want him on the show still one of the only ways they can bring him back if they felt like the character had to kill him besides flashbacks is you bring him back as this manifestation and then you fill in the flashbacks to make that manifestation have enough value to justify it that's the only thing i would say i'm not saying it's likely but this whole thing makes me feel like it's possible it's weird to me that tyrell seems so angry in that cab with elliot then when they got out it's so he's so nonchalant he's basically like hey what what are you doing man like what's up he's not angry at him he's not yelling like he's cool why is the most wanted man in america if not the world not wearing at least a ball cap josh why is he not wearing glasses why is he walking around with his face able to be recognized why isn't he wearing that Tyrell beard? Right. Because, to quote a different dark passenger, perhaps, tonight's the night. You know, maybe maybe now is the time. And it's like, who cares? We're right there. It's happening. Stage two is five minutes away. Uh, this is a man who is right on the edge of it. Why does he even need to have pretense when we're five minutes away from execution? Possible. I mean, completely possible. I think the beauty of where we're at right now and where we can really end this podcast is that... As we lead into the finale, both possibilities are on the table. I think we've articulated what we would want out of each possibility in order for them to be valuable. And I think that there's valid reasoning on both sides of it. And so maybe Tyrell's not in disguise because tonight's the night. Maybe he's not in disguise because this is how Elliot is manifesting him. And that's that. We don't really know. And maybe next week will give us, hopefully, shed some more light on that. I think we are going to get more about the Tyrell and Elliot relationship. We would almost 
almost have to. So I think that that's going to be something we do fill in some blanks on last week. What, next week, whether we get all of it or not, I don't know. But I do think that that's – I think we've talked out how there are both possibilities in play at this point, and I think that I wouldn't be shocked to find out that Tyrell was dead and that he's now manifesting as a ghost in Elliot's mind. And I agree with you completely that if that's the case, they're going to have to do some work to make that really land for me. Um, one last thing before we sign out, I think that, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out what is stage two, you know, what is stage two? What is it that they are about to do? What's about to happen? We've laid out some interesting ideas that maybe it's, you know, really beheading the equine strategy that Philip Price is putting out there. Maybe that's going to be the next attack and there's some sort of way of doing that. And that's what we're going to see. I think it's just, it's interesting to note where they are heading, uh, physically, uh, again, to bring in New York, a little bit of New York knowledge, they are going to church Street and Chambers Street, a very significant intersection, a subway station around there. One of my old jobs right in that neighborhood. They're coming for you. They're coming for me. If you go swing by Buckle My Shoe Nursery School, go give it a little salute. I spent three months working there. Great neighborhood. Church Street and Chambers is also very close to the World Trade Center. It is, uh, I believe, four blocks away. Yikes. Uh, Just about, you know, four or five blocks away. We have seen... We have seen the World Trade Center throughout this season. We saw it very famously in the very first episode of this season when Scott Knowles is burning the $5.9 million in the middle of the park. You see the World Trade Center in the background there. I believe we've seen it again. Yeah. So, so it has been an item on the visual part of the visual language of this show, of this season. They are super close to the World Trade Center. I don't know what they are going to do, but they are very close. Close to Wall Street and that financial aspect, the financial district here in New York. So you got to imagine it has something to do with that. And I think just seeing the visual motif of the Freedom Tower multiple times throughout the season, it sends chills down my spine as to where this show might be going next. Especially it's like the wrong time of year for that. So we have to be very careful. It's a scary time of year for that. For I sure. don't think Mr. Robot will go there fully, but I think that there is a possibility. It also wouldn't make sense to do something physically violent or massively destructive if they are going to be at Church Street and Chambers because they would be so close to the action. So I, I, re- I don't think that that's where it's going. But I wouldn't be surprised if, like, the Freedom Tower spouts out some digital message about uh, how awful E-Corp is or whatever is going on there. There's something that's going to happen there, I feel. Uh, I feel fairly strongly that something with the World Trade Center will appear on the uh, on the finale. I'm nervous about it. You've Very planted your flag on the top of that one for sure. Um, Very nervous about that. I, I'm nervous about it too. I'm nervous for you, for me, for the show. But I think that... I think the show's got the right sensibility, keeping in mind, of course, that last season's finale had to be postponed because of the guy who shot himself on live television right around the same time someone was killed on live television. So this is a show that has been eerily prescient at times, has really tapped into things that are happening. I think this show, I think this season's a little ahead of that in that regard with China and E-Corp and the Congo, things that are real in the world and not E-Corp in essence, but China and the Congo and mining and things like that. These things are all real things that are happening and there are real concerns and the show is ahead of the curve in terms of them being a great crisis uh, and in the same way ahead of the curve in terms of uh, e-currency. But I think this is an issue that uh, that 
I tell you what, they could really tap into some stuff and and make it a very uncomfortable finale for sure. And I think that's a very a very good observation based on the location at Church and Chambers. Uh, just like we've talked about Scott Knowles' apartment uh, possibly being where it is because of the uh, rather Tony or whatever you want to say nature of that area. Um, this is the financial epicenter. This is this is all those things. So it seems to be related to something like that. And if the Freedom Tower plays a role, it would make a lot of sense. So yeah, something to look out for as well. I think Python being the title of the episode, we talked it's a little a bit. Python of, sticking out into the night. Yeah. Uh, Python's, that Freedom Tower. Python's killed by constriction. They grasp an animal. They basically squeeze it until it suffocates, I think. And, uh, and I think that that is maybe what's happening to the United States vis-a-vis the 5-9 collapse. Then everybody gets in on the e-coin thing, and then the e-coin thing is going to be constricted. Uh, and they're ultimately going to kill our, our economy and kill the country as we know it with this plan. So I think that that's all something we have to watch out for. It's very concerning to me. Uh, and we'll just have to tune in next week to find out ultimately where this ends. I don't think we're going to answer everything we're, we're wondering about, but I do think we're going to get an answer on what is this stage two and, and where we are with stage two and how it's executed and what the impact is. I do think we're going to get an answer on what more is there to the Elliot and Tyrell relationship. And I think we're going to get an answer on whether Tyrell is in fact alive or dead. I, I mean, I really hope so. Uh, I would love for that to be definitive. <laughs> that would make me really happy that we wouldn't have an off season to worry about that. But now that I've said that out loud, of course, that's exactly what's going to happen. So yeah, well, what no, I think you- <laughs> we foresee a scenario where where yeah, our, yeah. our girl Joanna shows up, she finds Tyrell's body there, even as Elliot is working side by side with Tyrell. Totally, totally probable, uh, or at least possible. We will see how that goes. More of the finale to come next week. We are not finished yet. There is still one more episode of Mr. Robot. Wondering how long that's going to be. We will see. We will have coverage of that next week. Maybe a little bit differently than we have done in the past. Stay tuned for details on that just based on how the week is shaking out next week. We will have plenty of coverage. We will have plenty of hours of conversation about this show, I am sure. Uh, hashtag time. I don't know if, for me, you beat PTSDDP. That's, uh, that's I, pretty good. I liked Uncle Coy, too, though. I'm laughing hard about good. that still. Either one of those would work. Tweet that our way. Antonio at AC Mazzaro, two Z's, one R. I'm at Round Howard. Thanks as always for listening to this podcast. If you have not yet already done so, subscribe to our podcast, postshowrecaps.com slash Mr. Robot, iTunes, MR Robot, iTunes. Leave us your ratings, leave us your reviews. They are greatly appreciated. We will be back next week finishing up our conversation about the rest of Python, the rest of Mr. Robot season two, Mr. Robot at large. Going to be interesting stuff. We've been on Robot Road for a while now, Antonio, and it is at least coming to a pause, a long off-season pause, so we are really in the thick of it right now, right at the edge of this thing coming to an end. We're out of the woods, we're out of the woods, we're out of the woods. Yep, we're out of the woods. We cut our way out. We cut the woods numbers. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be where we are, man, and I've loved talking about it all season with you, and I'm looking forward to next week. All right, we will be back next week. Take care, everybody. Goodbye. Cheers.